On the Empire Podcast this week, we muck about in boats with George Clooney and Callum Turner. We get a lift back with Kevin Hart and Gugu and Batha Raw, and find ourselves up a creek, perhaps Shit's Creek, with Good Grief star and director Dan Levy. All that and more on the only movie podcast that has taken immense inspiration from this year's Golden Globes host, mm-hmm. though perhaps not in the way that they hoped. Very quick drop in here. You will notice that Helen sounds ever so slightly like she's underwater. That is not her fault. There was, in fact, a setting on her microphone that was off. We do correct it after three minutes and about 50 seconds. So just bear with us for a very short period of time and all will be well. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara and I'm once again standing in for your regular host, Chris Hewitt, who is away due to circumstances beyond our control. But rest assured, he will be back for next week's live show, our six. 100th episode, dear God, which is happening, of course, at the King's Place in London with very, very exciting guests. Speaking of which, let me just introduce my colleague of such lethal cunning, James Dyer. Hello. Hello. I am here. I'm here alone and I'm going to, I'm going to out him right here, right now. Ben Travis was due to join us for this week's podcast, but unreliable millennial that he is, to be fair to him, uh, a very important interview came up and the person who he is interviewing has his phone number and could call like Liam Neeson at any time, any time. So he's just literally waiting by the phone and he didn't want to be, it wasn't even so much being in the podcast and being like, oh, guys, i got to go. It was more, he was scared to get on the tube to come to the studio, lest said famous call him while he was down there. So you're not so much calling him out as, you know, giving him credit for actually doing his job. He's being being unnecessarily professional. And frankly, I don't help with that kind of thing. It's not something we approve of here. Anyway, just to be professional for a minute, I'm going to get back to the 600th freaking episode next week. Yes. Which is, of course, at King's Place in London. We have extremely exciting guests who I checked and I'm still not allowed to announce, but they're very exciting. And this is your reminder that streaming tickets are still available for that show. You can still be there virtually. Go to kingsplace.co.uk, search for the Empire Podcast. It should come up. Um, It is sold out in person, but it's always worth checking in the week of in case there are any returns. But as far as we know, it is totally sold out Mm. in person, but you can still get streaming tickets. so yeah, please come along and join us. But in the meantime, it's just just you and me. Again. Yeah, I mean, look, it's going to be a great show. Yeah. There will not be cake, as there was obviously at the Pilot TV live podcast. I mean, there could be cake. I could start baking now, you know. You could. Yeah, so Helen has said she will make a cake for everyone That's who attends. Way, way, that way, is way, literally way. what has just been guaranteed. Uh, what are you saying? Lemon drizzle? How are we doing this marble oh, cake? On, Victoria Sponge? I'd go a bit more uh, ornate than don't, that. Don't come at lemon drizzle cake. It's know, it's I'm, the king of cakes. I'm kidding. It's a very good cake. But actually, I, I can't cook for next week because I'm literally getting a new kitchen. So I won't have a kitchen. I see. Between next week. As far as excuses go, that's not a bad one. All right, fine. So if you want cake, come and see Pilot TV Live. Damn if it. you just want to see us, come to Amber. I will say, though, we've got new merch. And I know this because I ordered it. <laughs> so we've ordered some new merch. So you will not have to have the old 500 ones where we have literally just scribbled out the five and turned it into a six, which I won't lie, we have been doing recently. We have, been doing, uh, yeah. we have all new podcast Ooh. merch for our new show. Very excited about this. I'm also excited because this week I went to the theatre, but I kept it cinematic and saw a play based on a film. The only thing I know about this show, mm-hmm. is it has some of the best fire curtains I've ever seen. It does have incredible... So I went to the Barbican and I saw my neighbour Totoro and it was unbelievable. It like, And I know I'm late to the party on this. Everyone's out there saying, oh my God, Helen, we knew this. Um, 
but it is genuinely one of the most incredible theatre experiences of my life and I have to just make sure it's still there for I think two more months there might still be time for people to get standby tickets or returns or something so like it's I was literally crying at how lovely it was like not because tragic things happened it's basically my neighbor Totoro in terms of its you know story and everything but just like they had like they had live actual Totoro on stage. I mean, they had some puppet puppeteers around, like dressed <laughs> as the Benny Gesserit, just so you you know you didn't realize that it was actually a live creature. But it clearly was a live creature that they just had the puppeteers as like plausible deniability. Okay, and were there spiders? No, no, there were suit sprites. And, sure, spiders. What was there a cat bus? Yes, an actual physical cat an bus. An actual physical cat bus. Amazing. It was just out of this world. I, I had such a lovely time, and um, and yes, it also does have the Barbican does have the greatest, sa- you know, safety curtain. You know, the thing they put down during the interval in London. It's this wa- weird mirrored wall that comes down and just like distorts everything and looks very sci-fi. I love that as well. So I just had a great time. What are those? I mean, when the fire curtain comes down. Who is it saving from fires, the audience or the performers? I think it dates back to when they, the footlights were literally flames. So, yes, one of those two. I, th- I assume the audience. I assume, you know, given what we know of the ad- theatre you know, owners and so on, that they're more worried about the audience than their, that seems their employees. But, um, but yeah, it, it's always mystified me a little bit why we all still do it. And I'm sure somebody out there knows, and please do tell me, I'm not trying to disparage the importance of the safety curtain. I just don't understand it. Um, especially in this case, because they had two burly men come up on stage and lift pieces of the stage so that the safety curtain could fully close hmm. in this case, um, because they had it kind of thrust out a little bit. Um, and uh, And that seemed more dangerous maybe than, you know, not having it anyway. It was amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Loved it. Fantastic. And I'm going to see Spirited Away later in the year, so high hopes now. Very high hopes. Oh, you're on a big old Miyazaki tear. The only thing I'm going to see is I am going to see Les Mis for the 13th time I was going to uh, say, in a couple of weeks. seen it a million times? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to see it again. Oh, you dreamed a dream that I you did. Were I dreamed a dream again. that I was watching Les Mis again. I was like, it's been at least a couple of years. I should really go back. So. I don't understand how, when the 25th anniversary concert tickets came into the office, I went instead of you. Like, I these are all legitimate questions. Don't know why that was. Uh, but why my friend, uh, my friend's son, has got a role as Gavroche. Ooh. So there's a so yeah. So that's a, a oh, little, that's a, a, that's a legitimate there. reason to go back. That's amazing. Well yeah. done him. Yeah, he's very good. Gosh. Wow. So obviously, you know, I want to go and just watch him die on a barricade. So <laughs> that does put you a know, different spin to show on it. to show my solidarity. To show support, yeah, you're right. going to watch him die on a barricade. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as long as he doesn't die like a comedian presenting the Golden Globes, it should be fine. Oof, what a segue. Uh yeah, so <laughs> I I as people who listen to the excellent award-winning Pilot TV podcast will oh, know, boy. um I have a real aversion to cringe comedy, to kind of fremdscheimen, you know, that kind of vicarious embarrassment. So even though everyone talked about the opening monologue for the Golden Globes, I could not face watching it mm. because I just thought I would curl up and die. Yeah. Was I, it as cringe as I, advertised? Yeah, I watched it just because I had to understand what everyone was saying. I had to know, I had to see for myself. And then I really regretted it. It was, it was so painful. When you have a professional comedian of literally 30 years standing... Who we've never heard of. I should point we, that out. Well, we haven't in this country, but like he, I think he is due to come over here and play some very big venues in Less the near so future. Maybe not. But like he, he sold out Madison Square Garden apparently last year. He is a big deal. She was saying if he came to King's Place, he would probably sell out. I feel like he'd be okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. So like we shouldn't slag him off, <laughs> is what I'm saying. But 
he was off. He was off form. I think it's yeah. fair to say on the night of the Golden Globes, and um, and was laughing at his own jokes much louder than anyone else seemed to be, and uh, was uh, was shouting at one point at the audience, "Come on, that was hilarious!" And it's like, you know, I'm not a comedian, but I feel like <laughs> if you have to tell people it was funny. The problem might not be them, oh. you know. It's it's not a great look. Um, cut to next Saturday night and Chris going, "That was hilarious." Yeah, that's the, true. Uh, that was hundred percent ham. So, what was this comedian's name again? Remind me. Uh, his name is, I believe, Joe Coy. Joe Coy, yes, and not a joker. Anyway, oh. uh, but um, see, Martin was very nice to him. He posted on social media basically saying, look, we all shouldn't pile on this guy. It's a really difficult thing to do. I it still is. have, you know, horror flashbacks to doing the Oscars and whatnot. And, you know, I've, I was like, fair play to him. That was a very sort of like generous thing to, it, to do. It absolutely is. And look, I'm not, I'm not genuine. I'm genuinely not sort of slagging off how difficult it is to do, especially given the short notice. You know, he, he was only hired, I think, about a month ago. And obviously, in terms of working days, given the end of December, that's only been about 10 working days. At the same time, he he is a professional comedian of many years standing. He did have a writing team who he disparaged on stage and blamed for some of the lack of laughs, which wow. is not a great look. Um, so I, I did hope for more. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily expecting... You know, uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, brilliant, who for me are still the gold standard of uh, of Golden Globe hosts. But you know, a little bit more would have been nice. But you know, it's a it's a tough it's a tough gig in the sense that I don't think they they apparently did go out to a lot of bigger names first, yeah, or at least more internationally big names, and were turned down by the likes of you know um, the Smart Less podcast guys. You know, the Will Arnett's, uh, Jason Bateman gang. Um, they were turned down, I think, by other people as well. Um, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey have made it clear they never want to do it again. Yeah, absolutely fine. Um, and and at this point, is there more to be gained for your career by doing the Golden Globes or for the, by the Golden Globes for being associated with you or a lot of big names? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they're still trying to rehabilitate themselves, I think, very, very much. I mean, they they had a pretty good turnout. They had I have a to be very said, good turnout. T-Swizzle was in the audience, not impressed by the monologue. Uh, no. I just always think, like, you know, if your go-to gag is, hey, Barbie's a doll with big boobs, like that shouldn't be That's not where great, you land. Although and I will also, say, however yeah. badly he choked, he was not Seth MacFarlane singing I Saw Your Boobs at the Oscars, which may be the lowest point in the history of opening Yeah, that was, that, was, that was dreadful. Um, and and this, uh, the other thing is about the Taylor Swift joke, it wasn't just that it, you know, she wasn't abused, that's fine. But also, if you're going to tell a Taylor Swift joke, there is so much material that doesn't <laughs> relate to her boyfriend. Yeah. Like, why would you not go for literally anything else? Well, also, it's a, it was such a first-based joke. Yes. And I think that was the general problem. So these were all very first-based jokes. It's like, just push it out a little bit further. Just just one more draft. Yeah. Like a second draft. Yeah. Would have been good. Anyway, I mean, the awards were less embarrassing than they have been in many other years. So, like, fair play, I guess. I mean, in terms of who won the awards. Indeed, you yeah. know. Um, but... But we should we? I mean, should we run through the top level? I mean, I guess one we might should. say we'd leave this for news, but fuck it. Yeah, we we maybe should. But like, uh, let us preface this by saying we have never believed in the predictive powers of the Golden Globes no. vis-a-vis Oscars because they're mental. They give themselves two chances to get it right by having this divide between drama and then yeah. musical and comedy, and they still mostly miss out on who's going to win the Oscars. But Oppenheimer won Best Drama, and Poor Things won Musical or Comedy. So that's good 
for them. Uh, Killian Murphy also won Best Actor. Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon won Best Actress. Paul Giamatti won the Comedy Category Best Actor. Emma Stone, the Comedy Category Best Actress. Those are all pretty unimpeachable, I think. Um, Robert Downey Jr., Best Supporting Actor um, as well. Uh, who was Best Supporting Actress? Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. Again, mm. unimpeachable. Those are fine. The- the new cinematic and box office achievement category was... Can fuck off. Right? Yes. Like, what the fuck is that? I mean, not just because the era's tour was obviously robbed, but 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 it just seems like such a nebulous, weird thing. Here's the... And the Oscars has obviously flirted with this in recent years as well. It, the, I think the thing has been, in recent years, that there has been such a divide between what Oscars sees as their natural you know, preserve yeah. of like the, the awardsy kind of movies and the movies that have been making money at the box office, that they have been under pressure probably from studios, certainly from their own uh, televisors, uh, their broadcasters, to actually put some popular movies in there. And they haven't really been able to find a way to do that, right? So they've been trying to come up with these ridiculous categories so they can get the money makers in there and in front of audiences mm. without, as they see it, compromising what they do. Now, what's happening really, it's interesting that they've just finally gotten around to this because what's been happening recently at the box office is, I mean, aside from Super Mario Brothers, the big films of the year are nominated this time. Yeah, They're in the conversation. So you didn't have to do this, guys. The superhero-like era seems to be dying down. This is as well as being deeply stupid and embarrassing for everyone, (laughs) totally unnecessary. So get a grip, get rid of it. Yes. Stop being stupid. Agreed. And there was TV awards in there as well. There were, in fact, TV awards in there And The Bear did well. I believe they're good. No, I'm just kidding. I've heard they're fine. (laughs) Yeah. Well. Hey, shall we have a question? Let's have a question. Having already upended the way that we do these things. Yeah, well, you know, we like to shake things up. This comes from Sastian BD, who says, in honour of the coming episode 600 which I don't know if we've mentioned, is next week. What's the best movie with a number in the title, sequels not allowed? No T2 out of you, not Ooh, either of them. That's a, that's a tricky question. Mm. Uh, I mean, I've always been partial to 13 going on 30. Uh, that's a great It movie. is, isn't it? That's a really fun one because it's one of those rom-coms which, which keeps that, you know, like that 80s joie de vivre that was kind of rom-coms had before mm-hmm. they became quietly saccharine and cynical. And it has that. Like, it feels like an old school, like, uh, kind of part coming-of-age story, part romantic comedy, the, the whole body swap. Thing. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's She's very good. And she is very good. You know good. what? This Mark Ruffalo guy could be going places. He could. He may have a career ahead of him. <laughs> he could too. Seven is an obvious answer. Seven, yes. Well, see, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because does seven have a numeral in the title? And sometimes, yes, doesn't it? It's that S-E-7-E-N. It's upsetting. Yes. Typographically. Sir so, so 7N. Yeah. So 7N. Yes, yeah, so 7N. Like so expend seven four N. balls. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. District 9. District, District 9, 9 is that's a good, a good one. call. Yes. Yep. Um, 12 three, Angry Men, we have to 12 say. 12 Angry Men, yes. 300. Of course. 300, I was on set. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that. You may have mentioned that you saw the pecs in the flesh. <laughs> um, what else have we got? So many abs. Uh, so many abs. Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. Your beloved Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yes. Yes, the greatest British film of all time as established by me. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, David Lean would like a word. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> frankly, even Richard Curtis and Mike Newell would have both said, no, what are you talking about? Paul and uh, Pressburger are standing in line with like a baseball baddie. So I'd just like, be careful about that one. Fair. Yeah. And uh, they'd all be justified. Uh, eight Mile. 
Eight Mile. Eight Thirteen mile. Days. Thirteen Days. That was a great movie. Twenty-eight Days Later. Which brings, Which us, brings us to the new section, but we'll get to that a little bit later yeah, on. Okay, fine. Ten Commandments. I mean, okay, it's fine. <laughs> what? You were waiting for Eleven Commandments, the sequel. Yes. Yeah. If it doesn't, if you can't turn it up to eleven, I'm not interested. Three Ten to Yuma. I don't love it. You don't love it? I, I really love, like that. I'm not a Westerns girl. Oh. I struggle. You don't like the hats? I do like the hats. Oh. And I like the coats. I just and the leather chaps. find lots of the rest and, of it annoying. Yes. I don't know why. Uh, I should maybe give it another go. I you should. No, it's good. It is, three times a year is good. Although we have got to point now where we're simply listing all the films we can think of with numbers in the title yeah, as true. opposed to the best ones. Well, the best ones then, the best movie, the best single movie with a number in the title, that is... Oh, okay, okay. So so if we're talking non-sequels, mm-hmm. Ocean's Eleven. Okay. Uh, but there's an argument for 2001 Space Odyssey. There is. I'm not going to make it. Honestly, neither would I. No, I appreciate it. I admire it. It does not have my heart. Again, yes. Yeah. Very much. So, uh, yes, that is probably the correct answer. (laughs) For those keeping score, the correct answer is 2001 The Space Odyssey. For me, it is literally (laughs) anywhere. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because 2001 is one of those all-time classic films that so many filmmakers in particular say Mm. it changed the way they viewed cinema. It was a huge impact on them. They think it's the most amazing thing. And it's like, and I watched it and I was like, sure, but... Like, I, I really admire it, and I do think it's beautifully composed and yeah. incredibly well put together, and the effects are out of this world, particularly for when they were made, but even now. Um, but yeah, it, it just... it And I love it. its big ideas, its big idea sci-fi, which I admire, yeah. of course. We've talked about this a lot. But um, yeah, it's just... There's something quite chilly about there it. There is. So. I mean, I like the Blue Danube as much as the next person, but I just... I just can't engage with that film emotionally. It's a very... Do you know what? It has that... It's, it has what a lot of people accuse Nolan films of having, like mm. a very cold detachment, yeah, which accuse, doesn't engage you on an emotional level. They accuse him because he has that, but anyway. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Fine. Well, I do engage uh, emotionally with a lot of Nolan's films, but, I, but 2001, I cannot access it in that way. It feels very higher brain function to me. It's all very cerebral. And I just, yeah. Maybe, maybe we're just too dumb. But with I, would, I mm. would personally probably go for maybe... 12 Angry Men in that case. That's probably the next Would you? best one I can think of right now off the top of my head. That's difficult. I mean, I, I love 12 Monkeys. If we're going 12s, the Monkeys would, <laughs> would, would trump the Angry Men for me personally. Um, but honestly, oh, my favourite. Seven might be my favourite film with a number in the title that isn't a sequel. Might be. Uh, oh my God, I can't believe it's taken me until this point to remember... 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> the greatest teen movie ever made, 10 Things I Hate About You, stone cold, banger of a classic. That's 100% on my list. I mean, it's a, it's a great movie, but Heathers would like a word. I think we have definitively failed to answer that, which is all anybody can hope for, really, from us. If you would like to get your question read out on the Empire Podcast, then you can message us on Twitter. We are at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or we might miss it. Best strategy is usually to wait for one of Chris's panicked shout-outs just before two o'clock on a Thursday um, when he is desperate for a question. Uh, This was a one-off, you know, blue sky experiment. Um, Never to be repeated. 
I mean, those were fine questions, but I didn't have a huge number to choose from. So I think we will stick with Twitter from now, I'm afraid. Anyway, this is enough of our blether. It is time to add some class to these proceedings because we have joining us today the director and star of The Boys in the Boat. It is none other than George Clooney and Callum Turner, two faces that by our reckoning could launch at least 897 ships each on the Helen of Troy scale when we're talking boats. Their latest film is, of course, an account of the 1936 University of Washington junior varsity rowing team. Turner stars as rower Joe Rance, and Clooney is the director of this film based on a true story. And we sent Chris along recently to talk to them both. Please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by George Clooney and Callum Turner, director and star of The Boys in the Boat. How are you both? Good, man. Great, yeah, man. Good, good, good. Thank Thank you for the lovely weather. Oh, uh, you know, I did this personally. I arranged it. I feel that you We heard about you. (laughs) Well, you filmed here, so you must have been... I live here, so I know. You know, nicely. That's why I'm always in the pub. (laughs) And not on the water. Crucially, not on the water. Well, that is the funniest thing I I love about Brits in general. It's like, I'll drive by any pub, and it'll be like this. It'll be pouring rain and, you know, and (laughs) four degrees, and they're all outside drinking, and I'm like... What's wrong with you people? And they're like, "This is a nice day. This is a good. This is a good <laughs> day." What's wrong with you, George? All right, this is a good yeah. weather. We're slapping on the sunscreen. I know exactly. Slathered in sunscreen. It's it's a actually the thing. nicest feeling in the world for me. Is maybe April or May, sunshine, five o'clock. Everyone's outside a pub, and yeah. I'm like, "Wow, well, I'm proud to be English." Sure, that's for the those moment. three days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that the sun's out. But I got you. Got to catch it. You know, yeah. three days of sunlight cumulatively over the over year, the years together. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes together. Uh, so I was very, very taken in this film by the improvised megaphone that the coxswain has. Pretty great. Huh? Yeah, George, have you ever thought about having that on set? Because I people actually, would. I had a megaphone on the set, yeah, okay. but I like the one attached to your face. The one attached to your face. Because don't you think perhaps if yeah. we all had one of those, that that life would be simpler? It, it would be. Like I have two six-year-olds. Uh-huh. Just slap that <laughs> baby down and go, get in your room. <laughs> but then they'd have one also on there. But they're littler. Oh, littler ones, right. So they'd I, be baby ones. I, like this. I don't know if I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Callum, what would that be like for you if, not if you were wearing one, but if George had one of those on set well, strapped no, to I his lived through that. Head. I did live through that. I had a George, megaphone. George had an actual megaphone. You didn't have it on, no, on your face. A, yeah. like a megaphone okay. he had and uh, would scream, do it better. <laughs> do it faster. Yeah. Actually do it better. There's, so, no, there's <laughs> no better directing than just say, do it better. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's a clear note. So for years, you were storing up yeah. direction from people. I've been waiting my whole life to say, do it better. <laughs> I've actually worked with directors. You know, when, when you say do it better, that was actually true about the rowing. I would go, you can row better than that. Yeah. But you don't say that about actual acting. No. But I worked with a director on a sitcom once, and I did a take, and he just goes, George, Faster, funnier, do it better. Like, you know, I was like, okay, okay. Yeah, cheers, I'll, mate. I'll do the best I can. The George Lucas School of Direction. Faster, more intense. Faster. Yeah, more intensity. <laughs> Callum, what's it, forget the fact that George Clooney is sitting right here. Uh, what's it like being directed How? by him? I know, just how can I forget Use that? your acting It's hard because I'm the two times sexiest man alive. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Only, you are wearing a microphone strapped to your face right We now. need the third. Oh, yeah. I'm in, I'm in man. I'm ready to go. Yeah, we need the hat trick. Oh, we need a little hair dye. Yeah. No, you don't need it. Oh, I'm going to do it. Clearly, this is a very troubled relationship. So, yeah, what, what we was did it like? Not get along at yeah. all. What was it like cultivating that? And what's it like being directed by? You know, by this I was man? warned. A lot of people told me. 
They set me down. They said, it was Callum. my parents actually that told me. <laughs> yeah. that was the, that's the worst part. They set me down. They went, Callum, you're going to have such a good time on this. I hope you're going to be okay. He's <laughs> ruined making movies for me because now I've got to work with other people and it's now not going to be anywhere near as much fun. Um, yeah, you'll be working past three o'clock in the afternoon. You'll what, be like, what's going on, man? Ridiculous. I said that to you. I said, you've ruined it for me because people are going to finish on time. And I'm like, wow, that was a waste of a day. <laughs> I need to stand outside the pub. It's <laughs> exactly, five o'clock. Yeah. 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 yeah, come on. Um, no, it was wonderful. Uh, we built a shorthand very quickly and George is a wonderful human being and a brilliant well, We director. had a fun time and, you know, it was, we had a lot of challenges, you know, from the very you beginning. You stopped me there from embarrassing you. Yeah, I did. Yeah. We, I had to. We, uh, we, uh, we got the whole cast except for Callum got COVID the first week. Shit. And we kept shooting. I had to direct him through FaceTime from, from the bed for the first week so there was a lot of like holy shit how are we gonna do this um and the weather was rough and the guys didn't know how to row and there was all kind but you know it was a it was a wild start it was a wild start but um but we always knew we had it we knew the actors could do it you know i wasn't sure if they could row yet we figured that out as time went on but the rest (laughs) of it we knew they could act so we felt pretty good about george and grant set us up to succeed not only did they give us two months training prior to filming we uh trained for two hours after work every day Right. And uh, the the races were all shot towards the end of the filming. So we could, they allowed space for us to get better. I was going to say, because I, I would have thought that was, we would have been built into the, yeah, the yeah. prep, oh, yeah, like yeah, months yeah. and months of training and, and rowing. Did, yeah, Altogether hours. it was five months oh. of them training. Wow. And we really did everything in sync. You know, we'd drive there together, we'd eat together, we'd row together, we'd they walked exactly the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know who was who sometimes. On each other's shoulders. From yeah, each other's yeah. Terrible was for bridges. We were all so competitive and we wanted to be the best. And some of us would move, uh, would, would get better in different ways. And then someone would be lagging behind. It was all like pulling each other towards um, being able to get to that 46 strokes per minute, which we did in the end. Yeah. It was a euphoric feeling. Well, compare that now to modern Olympians. Do you know what the modern Olympics? That's the number that's it's still pretty high. That's, yeah. very that's, still, high. that's still pretty high. Yeah. And remember, these guys are doing it with old an old wooden boat and wooden yeah. oars. Uh, you know, they're also only doing it for about twelve seconds. <laughs> and the Olympians are doing it. It's God like, damn it, we done it. It's like playing golf, and you go, "Yeah, I birdied a hold of Tiger Woods bogey," and you go, "Yeah, one." That's amazing. Uh, there's a there's a lot of montages in this film, mm. which uh, and I'm fascinated by the art. Yeah. Of the montage. Yeah. Uh, do you have favorites? Do you do you have favorite that montages that you, that you were that you were drawing on, or well, is there a trick to a montage? A, probably one of the better montages I've ever seen uh, uh, was in Social Network, the rowing montage where he yeah. cut frames out. Uh, Fincher's really great technician. The rowing isn't as good, um, you know, because that was something that you know that to them was a a brief interlude, and for us, it's the entire theme of the film. So yeah. we we had to focus on the rowing being better, but the the way he shot that montage is amazing. It's a really sort of magical piece of film. And then, you know, I, I've always liked montages too, because you can, you can move the story forward pretty quickly. And it's hard when you're telling a story, for instance, a, a film like this, you know, we have to compact, we have to condense a great deal of training. And at some point that gets, could be very boring. So you really had to sort of jam it all together pretty quickly. And, yeah. And then we have Alexander Desplat put together a really good score to keep it moving. Mm-hmm. You know that that seemed to be the best way to do it because you can't sh- you can't not show it because yeah. you have to understand how hard it is. Yeah. Because otherwise you just think they got in the boat and rode. <laughs> you know, which 
just is impossible. And so that there, there is those versions of it, but we tried to do them judiciously. Yes. I, I, I love them. I'm a big fan of, of montage. And, uh, and, What's and Callum, my favorite from, from your point of view, well, my favorite, Rocky Four, the whole of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, whole, the whole of Rocky Four is one big montage, <laughs> pretty much. Or Evil Dead 2. Anyway, we could be here all oh day. Oh, my God. Uh, but uh, but uh, uh, Callum, from your point of view, was a lot of the, the stuff that was in the mo- those montages, was that literally, like George said, you're rowing for 12 seconds, where you're just grabbing bits and pieces for montage, for the montage? Or- no, sometimes we row longer and we'd work out for longer, but but George was so precise and he really knew what he wanted and, and how he wanted it. So we still, they, they still rowed like a kilometer, you know, they would row a long way when wow. I'd get seven seconds I could use. <laughs> and I'm going to do the woe is me here. We had to row back, so we had to like, least, <laughs> oh, so if we rowed a kilometer, we were rowing two and then two very became whiny. three. You're yeah. like, oh, I have not shut up about that, that can- recently. <laughs> He's, he's really upset about it's that. because George was next to us with a, with a glass of wine and in the a speedboat. <laughs> yeah, on the speed that's how I direct now. In a speedboat in a park and a glass of with wine. wine and the megaphone. Yeah, yeah the megaphone. Yeah. But uh, did you get it, George? I think so. Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Who knows? Cares? This wine is spectacular. <laughs> Where's this from again? Is this a Pinot? <laughs> but because George, you have been you've been stepping it up in terms of directing. This is your third film now in three years. This is. Right? I don't think so. I think well, it's four, maybe four years. Four years, four years, yeah. Four years, like yeah. That. But that's, yeah, that's, still- I just, uh, that's just sort of how it happened. We did this one a year and a half ago. I yeah, guess. that's right. So yeah. It's been a bit yeah, of right time. Yeah. Um, it was about, the strike sort of slowed everything down. Everybody had to figure out when we sort of knew while we were doing it, it was a holiday movie. Yeah. Because it, you know, it felt like a film that you could bring your family to, which is, I haven't done very many of in my life. Um, and so we want, we knew kind of, we weren't going to make it for last Christmas. So we, you know, we, we pushed it till this one. So. But yeah, I guess I, you know, I think this is probably going to be my last directing for a long time because it takes you, it's two years and it takes you a year really away. And my kids are six yeah. and it's a good time to be around them. And, you know, I'll tell you the other thing is acting is a really good gig. And I've got, I just did a movie with Brad, uh, uh, Brad Pitt is an actor. I've heard of him. <laughs> he's an up and comer. Um, and I've got oh, another guy from I, Troy. And I'm about to do. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm about to do a film uh, with Noah Baumbach. Uh, and I'm going to do a, a western with Alexander Payne. So I've got a couple of acting gigs. Also, we deserve more Clooney on screen. Oh, sure, you I understand that. I yeah. really do believe that. The, and the, also, before I, before I, before I croak, well, the people you're want this, you know. <laughs> so I feel like need this, it, you know, the, those are easier jobs. Three months out of your life, and you can go and do it. And I can take the kids, or the family with me. And we can move around. So I'm probably probably going to be a while before I get behind the camera again. So you know. Finish with this one for a while. You weren't tempted to act in this. It's because he, he worked with me. He was like, "I'm not doing that." That was again. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, once you once you've been to the mountaintop, you really can't go in <laughs> <laughs> and jumped. <laughs> so then, yeah, I was, I was waiting for the the Clooney cameo in this, but no, there's, there's, there's no, nothing. No. There was no place for me to to play the. Oh, there's no part for me, and I didn't. You know, it's not fun to do. You know, I've been in movies. There's a couple of movies I've done that I was the like Midnight Sky or something where I was the lead, but most of the time, you know, I've done them. You know, when I do a movie, I have to do a part in it just to get the budget, yeah, just to get the film made. And so it's fun when you don't have to do that. Mm. And, you know, the 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 book was the big seller on this one. You know? Yeah. So because the, the book is 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 was a phenomenon. Mm. Uh, Callum, were you aware of it? Were you aware of the story? No, I wasn't. Um, but I, he doesn't read. Yeah. I've, <laughs> 
<laughs> I like coloring in books and things. Well, like I read that. when there's such good television, is what I say. That's what I say. Yeah, amen to that. And great podcasts. Yes. there you go. That's for you. <laughs> My gift. I'll clip that. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I went to Mexico. I finished Masters of the Air and went to Mexico to just basically lose a bunch of weight. And I took the book and I met these two people from Seattle and they saw that I was reading the book and they were exhilarated that I was reading it and I'd heard about it. It's part of their folklore in Seattle. Right. You know, and um, we're going there tomorrow and it's going to be like a revival when we get there because they're all <laughs> so excited about coming they're there. playing the trailer in the 100,000 seat stadium for the football games and the oh, really yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, wow it's a big deal and, and by the way that's wow. for their university team we have one stadium in this country that's 100,000 oh, which really? is Wembley yeah. which is the professional it's the, the England football team and yeah, you guys yeah. have 100,000 seats for the university well the team. University of Michigan is 130,000 it's like the Coliseum it's crazy yeah, yeah. it's absolutely crazy yeah that's I mean, why I love sport, you know? Yeah, and I guess fun. that's what, because anything can happen. I guess what this, that's what this movie's about. It's like you don't know which way it's going to go. It's yeah. always fun. It also, it's a funny thing because, you know, I always, I'll be watching a basketball game and you'll just be like, oh, Jesus Christ. You know, you'll be pissed. I'm like, I'm, a, I'm from Kentucky, so I love the University of Kentucky and they just beat one team they shouldn't have beaten and then they just lost to a team that they have no business. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I always say about those kind of things in general, it's like everybody, the, the best, games ever are the ones that somebody comes back and wins you yeah, know from, yeah yeah from, it's the same thing in, the, in football I, and yeah, everything you're just like down two with like the last minute left. thing yeah. yeah it's so much fun. i love those clips on well i mean it happens all the time but i see it on youtube because i watch the games where it's like two seconds to go yeah and a kid has just <laughs> launched the basketball and yeah. they make the basket and it's, it's like euphoria fun. yeah but you know if you watch the actual footage of this race yeah. the, the germany race when you see it it's Italy and Germany, Italy and Germany, only in the frame. And there's, there's the finish line. And you're just watching it. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, <laughs> comes America down. It's actually shocking. You're just like, mm. what the mm. fuck just happened? And it's like, whoop, they, and they won. So it really was like a miracle, mm. you know, uh, race for these guys. And so that's what made it such a special event. So how do you make that work cinematically? I was talking to Joel Edgerton about this, about how you make sport cinematic you yeah. know because we're so used to it televisually yeah but rowing is not kind so, of not so much it's not so exciting yeah it's exciting to be there it's exciting if you're close enough hard to get close because the oars are so long the boats are so long you can't get in front of the boat because you'll capsize them with your camera boat so the there was a math to shooting it you know you had to figure out a way to shoot it but you know it was also for us the Everything about this film is accurate in terms of the love story, the the things that you would think are bullshit, like the coach, the other coach giving them the money, and the and the kid getting sick, and then mishearing the the ending. All of that it happened exactly as we did it in the film. The only thing we sort of cheated was the photo finish at the end because right. it was a photo finish, but we thought it's more fun to have him go develop the film and you know <laughs> yeah, you know, the tension, yeah, yeah, just to build it up a little bit. And he's got his thumb over the lens. Well, because you can think about sticker. what's a photo finish in 1936, yeah. you know, um, and so that made it. We thought we could build some suspense with that, and make it sort of fun, uh, and so we that's that's the only thing we really sort of pushed in terms of what wasn't accurate in the sport in the sports story. 
from your point of view, Callum, you're in this waiting for those 12 seconds of footage. You're rowing for a kilometer yeah. every day and you're going, I, I hope get, this is cinematic. And we get, <laughs> and we get seven seconds and I've rowed yeah. a kilometer. Yeah. But then when you yeah, see the great. finished product with all these amazing crash zooms and it's so dramatic. Oh, yeah, and, I love it. I yeah. love it. I was on the edge of my seat. When did you see it first? You saw I it? saw it about six weeks ago. Oh, you did? Yeah. Really? The yeah, first I went time? to a, a private screening room and uh, and it was just me and my agent. It was great. But, I, but two days ago, we had the premiere here and I loved watching with an audience. You know, you could feel the the it's energy different. in the room the man next to me was crying at the end yeah, yeah you, know, you know it's it's an interesting thing some films you know I, i'm actually a fan of streamers because the it creates a t just shitload of work for actors i mean it, yeah. when i was a young guy and and on television you know on monday mornings you'd go and look at the ratings there were 64 shows right. and if you weren't in the top 20 you're probably out of a job you yeah, know yeah. Now there's 640 shows, so actors have more work, and I really do appreciate that. And they and there's room to do interesting work in in that. Having said that, I really there's certain movies that are really need to be they need to be in a theater. You know, you got to see a comedy in a theater with other people, or you won't laugh. Mm. You'll smile. Yep. Um, you yep. know, but you won't <laughs> laugh out loud. Uh, scary movies are really fun to see in a theater where everybody jumps. Uh, big time, like sports, roaring sports film. I mean, we last night we went to this BAFTA screening and it was like mm. a revival. You know, people are like, ah, and they're cheering and they're on their ed edge of the seat screaming at the end. And it was really fun to watch because, you know, we don't know if it works. You know, you, I'm in an editing room going, I think I think it'll work and we'll figure it out. And then when you see an audience like mm. on the edge of their seats. Yeah. It's really fun. That's fascinating. As well as I guess over here also where this story perhaps isn't that well known. People, yeah. you know, but, aren't sure you know, how it's but, going to turn out. But sports stories work. Like, you know, we don't watch there. Yeah, there's a America has gotten more and more involved in, you know, football. We call it soccer, but football. But and F1 is another example of that where that TV show sort of made F1 popular. Yeah. Yeah. And football has become more and more popular. But it's not it doesn't compete with. Ba uh, you know basketball the nba or the uh, nfl or even baseball for that matter right now but it's getting there slowly but if you see a good football story or you see a good f1 story you know you're gonna watch it because we universal too yeah, right? we, yeah. Just, we love sports films yeah, you know absolutely. i love them anyway i love them i love them as well um george we were talking about about uh you returning to acting the fact you don't have a role in this means that 2023 would otherwise not have a george clooney credit Except mm. for your cameo as Bruce Wayne. Oh, in the Flash! Yeah. In the Flash, I, I didn't know I that thought, you did that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wanted to bring my Batman back because I feel <laughs> as if it, I think the world deserves it. George, can I tell you something? Your Batman is my Batman. Yes, you see, you see, this is this is a, <laughs> a whole generation. This is a team. This right guy's Batman, my favorite. That was my Batman. That was it. So he's not also, the brightest, uh, clearly. Uh, Uma, Uma Thurman. Huh? Uma Thurman. Yeah. was my first crush. Well, that's Poison Ivy. She, that's not a bad crush to have. That's not, yeah. She, she's still yeah. pretty amazing. How do you feel about Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze? I'm for it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you see? All for it. Mr. He's Freeze. <laughs> that was my Batman, guys. The Bat of the Birds. Yeah, yeah man. It's all there. It's really so. good. Freeze, freeze. <laughs> so now I go watch The Flash. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I got a call from, um, from those guys, and they were like, Andy, the director. Yeah. Warner Brothers called me up and they said, We have a funny idea. And I said, Okay. <laughs> Did you know immediately? Well, I didn't. I didn't want. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously, I'd make fun of Batman more than anybody makes fun of Batman, so I don't mind that. Right. And I thought it'd be funny. Yeah. I mean, I actually did one where he improvised, where he says, "You know, you know, Bruce, you're not Batman." And I went, "No shit." 
you know, flash. <laughs> they didn't use that one. I guess it was the ratings or something. But um, <laughs> but I've I've never seen it. But I I did it just as a, a right. hoot because I thought it would be funny. You showed up for a day, and that was oh for like half a day. Half a day. Just walked in and shot it. But you know, that's was it the, the same suit? I, no, I, I wasn't dressed as Batman. Dude, come on. I have some dignity. I haven't seen the movie. I'm 62 years old. You want to see me in a rubber nipples again? Come on, man. Yeah. By the way, I have rubber nipples now. You get to a certain age, you I actually have to replace erect. them. Oh, no, okay. no, no, no. I, I had some uh, collagen shot into them. Nice. Yeah, thanks. It's, painful, painful, it's a good look. George's yeah. method. When they ask him to play Bruce Wayne again, he goes That's method. It, yeah. I go right nipples. and start shooting up my nipples. <laughs> I wonder what that pump was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is it? Is that you for Batman? You done? Oh, yeah. Yeah? No, it's funny. I think James Gunn, somebody said, is this a, is this the start of George Clooney? Is is he going to come into the multi-universe as Batman again? And he wrote, he did like a quote, like, in no way ever. <laughs> <laughs> Callum's dreams shattered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're going to cry. I think I should be that guy in Beyond Batman, don't you? Like the you gray-haired should, yeah. guy. I think you should. Alfred? No, not Alfred. <laughs> Fuck off. I'm not that old. <laughs> Holy you're shit. Guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Batman. Bruce Wayne. He's, he's older and- He's older and- I Batman. Batman. You don't care. Yeah. You don't Callum, understand. Callum, honestly. I mean, honestly- uh, I've only got Alfred. one Batman. Alfred. Oh, no. I've only got one Batman. I know. That's, I, that, that, makes George, that makes me worried. I'm insulted on your behalf. Thank you. I'm going to end this now before this gets any worse. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> it's going downhill. It's going downhill fast. You're getting on so well. Callum Turner, George Clooney. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Cheers. Okay, as long promised, it is time now for some movie news. We mentioned 28 Days Later, but it's been a while. So let's talk about 28 Years yes. Later. How exciting is this? They are returning. So Danny Boyle and Alex Garland are officially developing the third in this increasingly long time-jumping saga of infected, not zombies, crucially, following Crucial. on for 28 Days Later, yep. and then 28 Weeks Later. 28 Weeks Later, I was on set of 28 Weeks really? Later. Really? Yes, uh, which I have very fond memories of. Um, yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm very psyched about this because, you know, you had the progression from obviously days two weeks that, mm -hmm. that showed you the the infection as it had spread and you know remember how that ends with like going into Paris and yeah. whatnot and now 28 years what state will the world be in well this is it so 28 it, years later so it's been um, it's actually been 22 years already since the first film yeah. the 2002 film Boyle of course directed Alex Garland was the writer at that point he hadn't started his own directing career it of course starred you know, current awards darling, Killian Murphy, it was one of his big first breakout hits. So it kind of makes sense. So basically, Boyle would again, obviously be attached to direct. Garland would write. But they're not just planning one. They are planning three of these and they are shopping them around to studios. Hang on. We're going to get 28 centuries later and 28 <laughs> millennia later because that's a little bit foundation level. I, I think they're all, well, yeah, it would be quite, a, I mean, I'd, I'd <laughs> I mean, I'd watch it. Yeah, I would watch it. But I think, I think the idea is that this will be a full trilogy of 28 years right, later. Right, right. Yeah. 28 years, um, part one, two, and three. And the original producer, Andrew McDonald, is back as well with Peter Rice. So it's, it's you know, it's sounding exciting. I don't think they've talked to the cast yet. I don't know if they're going to try and get any of the cast back. But over the years, various among them, including Killian Murphy, have said they'd be up for yeah. doing it in theory. So, you know, fingers crossed. But like, I'm just super excited to see what they do with it. But that's not the only big news. There's been so much big news. So much big news this so, week. So shall we... Talk about something else that's coming back, Helen. Okay. We refer, of course, to Star Wars. A new Star Wars movie has been announced, a new Star War, yeah. and it is the Mando and Grogu show. No, no, it's called 
Star Wars colon The Mandalorian and Grogu. Yeah, that's a terrible title. It's a terrible title. Like, I'm, ex- I'm super excited. This is nothing about the quality of the film. I'm super excited for the film. We love these characters. But there are titles that trip off the tongue. And and there are titles mm. that trip the tongue. Yeah. And this is one of the latter. So I'm I'm going to have to practice saying it a lot until I get it right. Also, nobody calls him Grogu. It's no. Baby Yoda. I know. And we shouldn't say Baby Yoda, apparently, but we do. But we, we do and we will. Um, and crucially, this is not the Dave Filoni Avengers kind of like team-up movie. This is a Favs joint, isn't it? This is this is John right. Favreau directing. I'm, I'm kind of open to this. I think you could go in interesting places... Uh, with Grogu's background, maybe. I think there's probably some stuff to be explored there. You could do some of the stuff that they touched on last season. So there's a bit last season where they're on like a a ring world or an orbital. Um, And it was proper sci-fi looking. And I feel like this is something that Star Wars has been kind of dabbling in mm. it's it sounds weird to say that star wars is dabbling in hardcore sci-fi but you know it, it kind of is though it hasn't really no it's always, always been more of a space fantasy it's than, been a space opera space yeah. western a lot of the time and and it feels a bit more it's it's they've touched on some more sci-fi things in the tv shows recently and i would like to see maybe some of that on the big screen which we haven't really oh. seen in that way so that could be kind of cool there's stuff you could do with these two that would be Freaking awesome. And we do love them. Yes. So I'm I'm really hopeful for this. And of course, they also confirmed at the same time that Filoni is developing season two of Ahsoka. So fingers crossed that that will be, that will maybe move us a bit forward for that story, which didn't do a huge amount of moving forward yeah. last season. But I enjoyed it. And actually, weirdly, I think we're not in a bad place with Star Wars at the moment. Like, you know, we've got the Acolyte coming up, the Skeleton Crew, but but Ahsoka, I enjoyed, you know, even if it wasn't spectacular, it was, it was good. Mm. And, you know, Mando as a movie, like, strikes me as well. I'm very excited about the upcoming Ray movie, you know, that, yeah. that that story's continuing. So I actually, I'm feeling quite optimistic for Star Wars in a way that, dare I say, I am less so about Marvel at the moment. Because, you know, Marvel feels like, I mean, we've talked about this endlessly, but that's never stopped us in the past. Marvel feels like it has hit a few speed bumps. You know, the recent Echo is fine. You know, I, but this, 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 ties into a bigger thing. Now, so th- you want to hear my theory? So so okay. this is Marvel's fallow year, right? Like they've decided, wisely I think, from mm-hmm. a cinematic point of view, they are going to rest things and they're only going to put out Deadpool 3. And Deadpool 3 for me still, I mean, it is an MCU movie, but it isn't an MCU movie, right? Mm-hmm. So it's legacy Fox stuff. It's going to be weird, wonderful, self-referential, fourth wall breaking. It's going to reference all kinds of shit. But I feel like even though it's now part of the continuity, it's still going to feel like its own thing. So we're not going to feel like we've got a core MCU sort of chapter at any point this year other than on TV and even that feels slightly different right Isn't, is Thunderbolts now 25? not this year yeah okay. that's not okay. this year so we've just got Deadpool 3 this year and even that doesn't feel so So you think okay brilliant so it lets them stop it lets them reset which is good for them creatively but it also from an audience point of view gets people excited again it lets us miss them it lets us miss them however it doesn't and let me tell you why and I was having this conversation in the office this year and this, this revelation came to me and it filled me with dread. And it is this. Judge Dread? Judge Dread, yes. It filled me with Judge Dread while we're talking about Alex Garland. I don't think, and not our listeners, our listeners, very savvy, clued in people. Very that savvy, they are. clued in people. I don't think the average person distinguishes between the MCU oh, and no. Spunk. 
Oh, they, they, not only that, they don't even differentiate between the NCU and the DC. Well, those people are just Universe. idiots. But yes, you're right. I think a lot of people don't. But I think even people who like cinema make, because bear in mind, a spunk film, that obviously I refer, when I say spunk, it's not a spunk film. It is the Sony Pictures Universe of Marvel characters. So we are talking Venom. We are talking Madam Web. We are talking Craven the Hunter. All three of those films are coming out this year. We have three yes. spunk movies. Stop trying to make spunk happen. Uh, we've got three spunk movies coming out this year. And I think a lot of people are going to think 2024. They're not going to think, oh, the MCU took a break. They're going to think, look at these. We had Madam Web. We had Venom 3. And just to muddy the waters still further, obviously these films start with the Marvel logo. Not the MCU logo and the fanfare, but the Marvel logo. So that's going to confuse people. But also, because of Spider-Man No Way Home, the waters are sufficiently muddy that Venom kind of is kind of connected now. So you can understand yeah. the confusion. If you are not properly clued in, you're going to make that mistake. And so it's not like Kevin Feige's like, yeah, we're giving everyone a year's break. No, what you've done is you've you've passed the reins over to Spunk and told them to carry the torch for a year. I, I don't think that's fair. They don't control what Sony does with their characters. No, I, I think they are all too aware of that. <laughs> and... You know, these may all be good films. We don't know that they're going to not be. They've got good people in them. Sure. In many cases. Every day is Christmas Eve. Every day is Christmas Eve in my head. Uh, look, yes, it's it's a risk. But look, so it goes, hey, we've only talked about most of the cinematic universe is currently alive. How about Star Trek? Yes. With the news this week that they have Andor director Toby Haynes lined up for a new Star Trek movie, which will be set apparently decades before the Kirk era of the original series. I don't want to be that guy. Please be that guy. Who am I kidding? I'm 100% 100 that that guy. guy. But like they were like, yes, it is set in the J.J. Abrams timeline, but a long way before 2000. No, 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 no. Well, hang hang on. If it's set before Kirk was born, then the Kelvin timeline doesn't exist. So it cannot be in the J.J. Abrams chronology. If it is set prior to 2009 Star Trek, that is a non-thing. That is true. Unless they're planning to fracture the timeline once again. Uh, In which case, you then have a, I don't know, another, like a Haynes timeline. I don't know what it's going to be called. So, yeah, I don't know what that's going to be. That's uh, is it? Is it a secret backdoor, big screen debut for Star Trek Enterprise? <laughs> Let's hope. It's been a long road, Helen, <laughs> getting from there to here. But excited that a new Star Trek movie is happening. Yes, always. As long as they keep this emphasis on good TV shows, which I think is where it also belongs. Yeah. There was also very exciting Paul Thomas Anderson news this week. So Leonardo DiCaprio, Sean Penn, and Regina Hall are all signed up for his new film, which is set in in the present day, is reportedly budgeted at around a hundred million, which is a lot for a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It is. Um, who because he I'll be honest, he doesn't make for the most part box office hits. No. And I love him and I'm glad people are still funding him. But he doesn't. But I think it might be the DiCaprio factor in this case. I think that's probably what's happening. Um, and apparently Regina Hall, actually, if you look at the 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 maths, she's a hugely bankable actress. She is massively a return on investment. On account of being fabulous. On account of being fabulous. So this is this is a good start. This is a very good start. So um and I'm basically here for anything that Paul Thomas Anderson decides to make. So uh yeah. Talk to me about The Last of Us, because there was a little bit of casting news this there week. There was a little bit of casting news. There have been, uh, well, the big the big Last of Us news is obviously that Caitlin Diva has been cast as Abby in the second season of the show. Now, this has been rumoured for quite some time. There's been a lot of discussion about it. There's been a lot of controversy about it, and it is a bit of divisive casting. And the reason why it's divisive casting is because the character of Abby, voiced by Laura Bailey in the game, uh, is a very physical role. 
So she is a very tall, very muscular woman who right. has the physical attributes of a very hench man, essentially. Uh, she could fuck your shit up, is what we're saying. And so Caitlin Diva, who is, with the best will in the world, five foot two and, you know, shall we say, of delicate frame, is not someone you would necessarily think of for that character. And so people who are kind of purists have been a bit like, you know, this is ridiculous, it's terrible casting, you know. Why and I think all of that is unfair. And I think a lot of this comes from the fact that Caitlin Deaver actually auditioned for the role of Ellie for season one, but she was a little bit too old. So she's 27, I think. Bella Ramsey is 20. Okay. So I think it's one of these things where 10 years ago, she'd have been a really good Ellie. Yeah, Not yeah. least because she looks a lot like the video game incarnation of that character. She's a great actor, a great actor. So actually, I'm not, I'm not concerned about this casting. I don't think it's bad casting. I think it's great that she's going to be part of it. And my thought process on this is that they wanted a name. They wanted someone recognisable. They wanted someone people could get excited about, and she is that. They wanted a really great actor, and she is that too. And I wonder whether the physicality, which is such a big part of the game, just doesn't need to be as big a part of... Of a TV the show, adaptation. because because the, one of the reasons for her physicality in the game is because in the first game you play as Joel, right? Like so, so in this, the you play as both. Well, you play you play as that character at one point during the game. Like there is a bit where you play as that character, and she plays more like Joel. That's the point. Like the differentiator. Okay. So she plays like a different style of character to Ellie, who is small and wiry and has a little knife. Like so, it's a it's a slightly different thing. So. That that's not a consideration here, right? So this is a purely narrative story. So maybe they do lean into the psychological toughness of that character, and it's less about her being physically imposing. I fully expect her to hit the gym and and become very ripped in a kind of Linda Hamilton T two kind of sure. way. I don't think she needs to be five foot seven and built like a Brit shit house. She's not no, Jack Reacher. No, but I think I think there is this perception and reality uh, that only a certain type of female, especially body type, is allowed to be seen on screen. I think that's, yeah. that's a lot driving a lot of the disappointment in this, re in this but, respect, I would imagine. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And also there's the fact that if you were to look for someone built like Abby in the game, who the fuck would you cast? Like, genuinely, who would you cast? So is it, what, like a Gina Carano kind of... I mean, basically, yes. Like, there are lines in the game where a huge muscular guy goes... Basically, she's built like me. Like, because she is massive. Like, she could, like, she's not quite Schwarzenegger level, but she's big. Right. Um, so, so it's interesting, but I, I think they'll, they'll move away from that. But you do, so it's crucial that you do see that character at a younger, more delicate age in the story. So you can still see her looking as Kennedy is now. And then, you know, with six months of training and stuff, like, she could, you know, become a more physical presence. I, I, there's a lot to be said. It's an int I don't want to talk too much about it because the story of The Last of Us Part 2, which is, of course, uh, certainly, I don't imagine the whole story is the second season. It probably goes to seasons two and three. But the story of it has twists and turns that we really just don't want to touch yeah, yeah. into. All I will say is it, it is an exceptionally well-told narrative. It's incredibly audacious. What they did was so bold uh, and almost groundbreaking. I, I, I am fascinated to see A, how they adapt it and B, how people respond to it because it's, it's an incredible bit of storytelling but again, the whole thing was very divisive so yeah, I, I think lots of exciting stuff in store for The Last of Us Part 2 if you did not play the games my suggestion is try and stay off the internet I mean, that's it. That's it. Shut, shut down the internet. Shut down social media. Go full Luddite. Um, live in a cave until you've had a chance to see this because really, if you can avoid the plot twists, I really would. Okay, fair enough.
And uh, by the way, uh, full marks to Nick Offerman, who just won a Creative Arts Emmy for his appearance in the last season. He did indeed. And well. uh, I mean, I suppose while we're talking Last of Us casting, young Mazzino, who was in Beef, uh, is going to be playing Jesse, who's one of the characters in Last of Us season two as well. I don't know anything about Jesse, uh, but well done him. Yeah, there's a couple there, maybe sort of like two or three other big roles that we're waiting to see cast. But okay. uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm very, very, very psyched. In fact, I'm more psyched about The Last of Us part two, or season two, I should say, than really anything else at the moment, with the exception <gasps> of, with there the exception go. of June, June part two. June! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, we we have, I know, spent loads of time on news, but there is so much this week. We should also mention the SAG nominations are That's out. That's right. And the SAG nominations, unlike the Golden Globes, are a good predictor of the Oscars. <laughs> uh, there's a huge overlap in voting patterns. And the, uh, the SAG equivalent of sort of best picture is the outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture. And the nominees there are American Fiction, Barbie, The Color Purple, Killers of the Flower Moon and Oppenheimer. Uh, male actor, uh, who, who's up for that? That's Bradley Cooper, Coleman Domingo, Paul Giamatti, Killian Murphy and Jeffrey Wright. Uh, outstanding performance by a fe- female actor is Annette Benning, Lily Gladstone, Kerry Mulligan, Margot Robbie and Emma Stone. Um, so it's a similar lineup of nominees, but I think these are going to be a much more... They'll have much more guidance, basically, for the Oscars. This is going to be out on... The, the awards will be on 24th of February. Yeah. And SAG Awards, officially 80 to 90% less batshit than the Golden Globes in any given year. So That is generally the case. And they've become a slightly bigger deal, I think, as well, over the years. We don't have time to get into everything else. I'm just not going to bother. I'm going to ask you one thing, though. Okay, please. There was... Because I feel that you have investment in this particular piece of news. And that's that Jerry Butler's going to re- be reprising the role of Stoic yes. in the live-action How to Train Your Dragon. I'm very pleased about this. This is one of the things I was just about to wind up, actually, because um, I think I don't think you can you can really do better than him as stoic. And I hope that he he dons some kind of costume that is six feet wide at the shoulders to get the proper <laughs> stoic dimensions back into play. But I, I love his voice performance. I love the character. Um, I love the way that he totally fails, tries and fails to communicate with his son. I think it's very sweet and, uh, you know, kind of gently toxic masculinity in in the best way, if that makes sense. Uh, but I love him for that. I, I also really hope that the live action films explain at what time, at what point in your life does your American accent turn Scottish? I hope, I hope that someone will finally make that clear. Um, but yeah, very, very good news. We should also mention, just, just to kind of round up everything else, Julia Garner has joined uh, Bloomhouse's ad- adaptation of Wolfman. Um, so she'll be starring opposite Christopher Abbott, who was signed up to lead in that last month. And Leigh Whannell is, of course, directing. Steven Spielberg, our beloved Uncle Steve, is producing an adaptation of a short story called Long Lost, alongside Simon Kinberg, and it is apparently the story of a recently married woman whose life is upended when her husband's long-lost first wife returns <gasps> after being believed dead, um, sparking fears that she's got a sinister plan. Like Palpatine, somehow she returned. Kind of that, yeah, but I, do, I think there's more to it, but I, I haven't read the short story, so I don't know yet. Um, so hot right now, Jacob Elordi is replacing Andrew Garfield in the Guillermo del Toro Frankenstein I mean, is he playing the creature? He's very tall. And apparently Oscar Isaac is still on board to play the scientist. So, a little confusing. Anyway, Mia Goth is still in it. Oscar Isaac's still in it. And now Jacob Lordy is in it with them, along with Christoph Waltz, Felix Kammerer, Lars Mikkelsen, David Bradley, and Christian Convery. Convery sorry. Um, so, it's, it's very exciting. It's a Guillermo del Toro Frankenstein. Who doesn't love that? My God. Indeed. All right. Have we finally wrapped up movie news? Is that it? 
we might have done. Oh, God, I hope so. That was the longest uh, movie news ever. No, we forgot something back in black. The trailer for the Amy Winehouse documentary is out. She looks like Amy Winehouse a bit. So, you know. Ask me if I saw it, Helen. Did you see it? No, no, no. Oh, God. It's time for another guess. <laughs> or rather, guess. Because Gugu and Batha Raw is the star of films like Bell and Beyond the Lights, and TV shows like, of course, Loki and Black Mirror. Kevin Hart is the wildly successful stand up turned film star in the likes of Jumanji and Central Intelligence. Together, they are the stars of Lyft, the new film out this week on Netflix from F. Gary Gray that drops uh, on Friday. And we sent Amon along, well, right now. We are sending Amon along, even as we speak, uh, to talk to them both. And hopefully all will have been gone well. So here are Gugu Mbatha-Raw and Kevin Hart. Please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the stars of Lyft, Gugu Mbatha-Raw and Kevin Hart. How are you both? How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I was really excited to check this movie out because I'm a big fan of heist movies, the drama, the, the unpredictability, the showmanship. What are your favourite heist movies and what enticed you about making this one? That's a good question. Mm, oh my uh, gosh. What's your favourite? I mean, I'm I, a big Oceans fan. I was going to say Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, you know, the first job. one, yes. Soderbergh, so great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to go Oceans. Oceans. Uh, I'll go Italian Job. Oh yeah, also love. F. Gary Gray. F. Gary Gray did an amazing job with Italian job those are probably my top mm. yeah yeah and what ties you about making this one um i think you know the the opportunity to give a fresh take on uh on something that's been done a lot right like the idea of heist movies is you know it's not like it's a new concept mm. so when you can crack the code and and refresh it to some degree uh i think that's special because you can create a lane that's very specific to the way that you approached it and the way that you did it and i think now we are a part of a conversation um of a lot of good versions of it i think Liv has to be in that conversation as well so that's the attractive part for me mm. i think for you as well there's, a, there's an action component to this i haven't seen you do much action before what were your expectations going in on that side of things and how did reality match up to that yeah you know it really felt like an exciting departure for me to be able to take on a movie like this I think because you know typically I've done more serious dramas and I just come off the back of surface you know an intense psychological thriller you know and low-key where my character is also very intense and you know obviously Abby in this you know she is she's a serious lady she's kind of a straight woman but but the tone of of the show is lighthearted you know it's fun it's action-packed it's fast-paced and I think also as you mentioned the opportunity to really get into the action this is the most fighting and stunts I've ever done on any project and not just fights you know we're fighting on a plane the set is moving you know we're in rotating sets on wires you know it's really complex some of the fight sequences and obviously the chance to work with Kevin and this amazing cast you know it's such an international crew and really the film feels very global because Mm -hmm. we got to go to these incredible locations and the cast as I say from all over the world sounds like they really threw you in at the deep end with the action (laughs) sort of sink or swim was it like what was the first day of doing those stunts and did you get more comfortable as it went on oh my gosh well I remember we did some you know stunt rehearsals you know in those in the sort of stunt gym that's like where you get to crash into cardboard boxes and stuff like that you know the first time around you're really getting to kind of you know everything's padded and, and you know you get a chance to like make mistakes and learn all the choreography but I think for me you know 
you know, coming from my first love of dance, there is that that choreography, that chance to like learn the moves and you get quicker and you get like more fluent with it is is really satisfying. Yeah, you weren't you weren't slow. You were very fast. Mm. Very fast with picking it up. Mm. Natural. Yeah. And this isn't your first rodeo with action. You've obviously done a lot of films with Dwayne Johnson. And I was gonna ask you what action tips did you learn from him, but maybe a better question is what action tips did you teach him? Yeah, when you, that's, that's the way it's always went. It's always been like when we were on set, I'm like, no, dude, don't do it that way. Do it this way. You know, hey, don't hold the gun like that. Hold it like this. Like, I forgot what movie we were doing. I think it was Central Intelligence and there was one scene. He was like, hey, you guys better run. He had the gun. And I was like, that's not how you hold it. And it was like, you know, it was just a lie. It's tough um, carrying people, right? So in this case, it felt good to finally um, have people around me that were like adding right to the to the to the project where like with Dwayne I'm like oh do this and do that no Dwayne is phenomenal uh always has been I think you know I'm I'm when we've worked together I've been more reactive uh in our projects and it's more about the escape the getaway whereas in this one you know it's more about the prevention the stop uh and the plan the executing of a plan so uh Cyrus's level of action um it was different it was different. It was refreshing. And it, it was, uh, for lack of a better word, extremely leading man. Right. So our fight scenes mm-hmm. were great. And I love that it wasn't just me. I love that Google, to your point earlier, like was heavily involved. And, you know, the team that we didn't want to be, we were forced to be, uh, in dealing with the things that we had to deal with in this film. And I think it was, uh, it was really dope. It was really dope how we tied it all in together and, you know, how the entourage plays a massive part, um, in helping us basically pull off the heist of, all heists. Now that you've both spent some time in this stunt world, does that affect the way that you watch TV shows and films and when you're watching action, it's like, oh, I, I noticed that now. I wouldn't have noticed that before because I've done it. Have you have you noticed the change? I'm, I, I think I've always been like that because you're yeah. on the, you know, once you get on the side where you're by, behind the lens, uh, you're a part of storytelling, you're always watching things and dissecting Yeah, them, I agree. Like, yeah. But I think I have a new appreciation for the genre of action because, you know, I've always watched those movies and been like, oh yeah, they're fast, they're fun, they're cool. But like, you know, just because something is, you know, fun, doesn't mean it's not hard work. Do you know what I mean? And doesn't mean that it's not like still to make those sequences, you know, the editing, you know, and F. Gary Gray and our editor, you know, make the sense of it being so fast paced. You really believe, you know, all of the transitions and you're on the edge of your seat. And I I sort of really, you know, getting to see the film with an audience as we did the other day in New York, you know, it was kind of amazing to feel that, you know, anticipation that you get with an audience. And I think that's, that's hard to pull off. You know, um, so so I have a new a new respect for the action genre. Well, you know, you like if you. I remember Daniel Craig uh, wrote like an emotional letter mm. when he was stepping away from the uh, from the bonds, mm. right? And on his last one, um, you know, he was just talking about why he made the decision and why this would be his last one and what that last down set was. But he really talked about the wear and tear that mm. shooting the movie put on his body. And I think, you know, um, without understanding it, you overlook the amount of real work that goes into that. Mm. Like the physical 
physicality that you have to really endure um, while shooting those high level action movies from the run scenes, the fighting scenes. Like there's a lot of banging. There's a lot of shooting. There's a lot of takes. And, you know, one scene can take anywhere from seven days to 10 days. Mm. And you're in the next one, which is the fight after that fight. It's so, so many pieces. But uh, to those people that have done it at the highest levels, um, there's a different hat that just should be taken off because mm. there's a lot that goes into making those movies great. And the stuntmen and the stunt choreographers and coordinators, like that's, that's, to your point earlier, it's a well-oiled machine of choreography. It's fluid yeah. dance uh, that instead of, you know, instead of having light steps, there's hard punches and body slams. Mm-hmm. But it's beautifully played out. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes they don't get all the credit that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is why I'm campaigning for a stunt Oscar. It should have been should a thing. Be. Yeah, that really should be. Yeah. Absolutely. Go look at the work that Bruce Willis did. Go look at the work that Arnold Schwarzenegger did or Sylvester Stallone in those early days. Like, mm-hmm. that's not easy. Mm-hmm. You know, Daniel Craig, Matt Damon. I mean, the only reason why I can name all these people is because as an action star myself, um, you know, we basically all talk a lot. So a conversation that we've had in our group chat has been like, why aren't they giving us Oscars by us? I'm talking about Harrison Ford, Jet Li, Jackie Chan. TC. TC. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know him. Mm-hmm. So when I say TC, it's always like people know how we talk and I can't assume that. Uh, but us action guys, you know, we uh, we sit down, we talk, we share stories. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I'd love to know the name of this WhatsApp group. When, when you uh, our group chat? Yeah. It's called Fuck Shit Up. <laughs> That's what it's called. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, Google, one of my favorite scenes in the lift is when your character Abby uh, is talking about her school days and talking about uh, the idea of dreaming big. And I wanted to ask you, when you were thinking about getting into this acting game what dreams did you have about what type of films you wanted to be in and what what you wanted to accomplish and now that you've been so successful what have those dreams been replaced by Mm. oh thank you that's one of my favorite scenes as well actually and I think it's because you know it roots the movie in character and you get to actually see you know the journey that people are on as opposed to the role that they're playing and um, you know you're right I mean I feel like for me you know starting off wanting to dance initially then wanting to do theatre and musical theatre and then you know I didn't really dream of movies I dreamt of being on stage uh, and it, uh, you know that was what was accessible to me growing up and it really wasn't until after I'd l- left drama school and done some work in the theatre that I started to get TV roles you know and then into films so so I didn't even dare to dream of movies actually you know I was thinking about stage and you know I also loved art as well so you know uh, early on I was kind of torn between acting and painting. Um, so it's kind of a fun full circle that this movie is an art heist, you know, that suddenly like the acting world has brought me towards the art world, you know, in such a, a fun way. So no, it's wonderful. And, and I love to kind of keep stretching myself. I think, you know, this is, as I said, a bit of a departure for me doing something a bit more lighthearted on my first action movie. And, you know, for me, it's all about longevity. Mm. And, you know, and I, I know that you, you appreciate that as well to be able to stretch yourself in different directions not to just do the same genre Mm -hmm. to to try and grow to work with artists that come from different disciplines to you different cultures because that makes you better you know so so yeah I'm I'm really thrilled Kevin for you Abby uh, she has this dream and 
played, played a very formative role in putting her on the path to where she is today. Was there anything for you in your school days growing up that put you on the path to where you are today? Uh, absolutely not. I wish I could sit up here and lie to you and say yes. Uh, no, I definitely, I, I did not approach school correctly. I did not take advantage of school the way that you're supposed to. Um, you know, I uh, I didn't prioritize the idea of learning and free education, right? Um, the plan that should have been in place wasn't one that I had, and I, and I think I got extremely lucky. And in that regard, didn't do my parents justice in, you know, kind of following through with the blueprint that they set out for me. So, you know, very, very lucky. And, you know, sometimes it's like the best, the biggest lesson that I give my kids is just making sure that you approach the idea of education and free education correctly and don't take it for granted because it doesn't have to be that way. And I definitely did. So it worked out. You're here now. It's good. It's good. I'm being honest. So people don't think I'm full of shit. Yeah, yeah, no, school. Yeah, I knew it. You know, the plan was straight. Listen, if you think about it, it's going to happen. It's not happening. No. Uh, as we wrap up, Google, I just wanted to ask about Loki season two real quick because we all love the second season. The last two episodes especially were freaking amazing. Um, what did you make of Ravona Renslayer's journey and have you had any conversations about continuing it in future seasons or a movie? Perhaps? Yeah, you know, I have not really been able to talk about Loki because it came out during the strike when we mm. weren't able to do any promotion. So I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. And, you know, the, the following of the show has been amazing. Uh, and I love Ravona. You you know, I love that she is a complex character. I'm always trying to bring nuance to her, you know, and I love that the arc that we got to show, you know, traveling in time in season two. Um, yeah, I hope there's 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 more there's more space for her. You know, where the where the show ends is very um, you know open ended, um, but you know, I think there's definitely. Um, some real scope for her to, you know, step up and, um, you know, really grow, grow in that role. You know, heaven loves you. Oh yeah. And I told you like, <laughs> my daughter's obsessed. Oh. Like, with that, you think she'll tell me stuff? That's oh like, yeah. 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 Nice. yeah. No, I know. no, she won't. <laughs> I was say, maybe she has the inside track, but you're, you're good. You don't want to. Oh no! Mm. I mean, it's Marvel. We're mm. like NDA'd up, yeah. uh, so. But um, but no, I mean, she's such a wonderful, complex character. So I'm I'm looking forward to the future with her. Any aspirations for you to join the MCU, DCU, become a hero, villain? Uh, if they tell the story of Mister Hanky from South Park, I'm in. <laughs> uh, floating piece of poop. You remember? Nobody remembers Mister Hanky. Heidi, oh, nobody remembers. They ever. Well, tell Mr. Hickey's story. I'm the guy. <laughs> or Mighty Mouse. I would do Mighty Mouse. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mighty Mouse. Mighty Mouse. That's it. I'm not interested in any else. Mr. Hickey. has some Disney contacts. You should be asking people. Mighty Mouse. That's the only one I would do. Okay. Yeah. There you go. They got me smart. I'm still pissed about it, man. Still pissed. It's the one call I've never got. So, so pissed. I don't talk to Paul Rudd. I don't speak. I refuse to speak to him. I just, what, what could we get from a Kevin Hart Ant-Man? What, what do you well, think the world is missing out on? Well, I'll tell you what, a, a stronger suit, okay? I would have had more muscles in my suit, and I would have came in there juiced up. I would have been ready. And went with Paul Rudd. Didn't even call me. I didn't even get a read. And I, I, you know, I, I am at me. Right, right. Oh the God. idea to play something small and then press a button and I'm big and then I go back to small. Are you the kidding dream. me? That's the dream. It's a dream job. Son of a bitches. They didn't even call me. <sighs> I don't want to talk about it. I get upset. 
You know, it's, it's a whole multiverse now, Amal. And so, the wasp. So. I couldn't even be the bad guy. <laughs> they didn't even ask me about the wasp. I never lost the ant and the wasp. <laughs> like, what are you looking for? I got a following. All right? I'm built like an ant. If you really look at me close, if you really look at me close, little legs, you know, I don't talk about my butt, but it's a little pop back here. Head. I could have been an ant or the wasp. <laughs> so stupid. Kevin Pye, he missed out. Then no, I didn't. So stupid. Uh, on that amazing note, Kevin Hart, Google and Battleball, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. <laughs> Paul, we gotta talk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on to this week's films. Let us start at the top. Let us start with Yorgos Lanthimos's new film. It is in the Oscar conversation. It is very buzzed about. It is, of course, the Emma Stone starring Poor Things. Yes, this is the latest thing from uh, Greek weird wave auteur Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, it reteams him with the favourites uh, Emma Stone, and it is an adaptation of the 1992 novel by Alistair Gray. Full title: Poor Things: Colon Episodes from the Early Life of Archibald McCandless, MD, Scottish Public Health Officer, which was truncated. I can't imagine why. Uh, this stars Emma Stone as Bella Baxter, who is. I think it's fairly safe to say, a unique character in cinema. She is, and I think we can say this much, she is an infant in a woman's body, essentially. When we first meet her, yes. When we first meet her. Uh, she is the adopted daughter and, in fact, creation of Dr. Godwin Baxter, played here by Willem Dafoe. He and his assistant, Max McCandles, played by Rami Youssef, are charting her development, shall we say. Unfortunately, it gets to a point where she is swept up by Mark Ruffalo's lawyer who comes in and offers to take her on a grand old adventure. She says yes, and the rest essentially is history, and it becomes uh, a journey of self-discovery and, to be honest, sexual awakening for Bella. That's the plot. I don't know that the plot does this film justice no. because it's not really a film that hinges on its plot. It is... Completely batshit. And you get an idea for that early on. Like it flips from from saturated over color from black and white early on. It has like it cuts to fisheye lenses here and there, these very strange interstitial titles. Um, it's incredibly stylized. And I think early on, like Willem Dafoe while eating dinner, uh belches a giant sort of multicolored bubble that kind of floats over the table and bursts. And that kind of gives you an idea for this weird, surreal, almost fairy tale tone that this story has. Emma Stone, who puts on it, has to be said, and look, this isn't in any way new or controversial to say because everyone has talked about this, it is the role of her career, it's the performance of her career, it's incredible. The way she plays that character initially in this very infantile way, in this almost robotic Frankenstein-esque, the way she moves, the way her body works, and then gradually the evolution of that character as her mind develops to catch up with her body is fascinating. She plays it brilliantly. Um... It's not a plotty film, though. Like, it's very character-led, it's very absurd, it's very darkly comic, and it's very, very horny. Um, she spends an inordinate amount of this film butt-ass naked, to the point where I was going backwards and forwards on whether I thought the film itself was 
specifically prurient. It was I was I watched no. this all the way through. No, I don't think it was, but I went backwards and forwards on this because and all the way through this, I was thinking I cannot wait to talk to Terry about this film and find out what she thought of it because on the one hand, it is about female empowerment and about emancipation and about sexuality and about having control of your own body and all of these things and casting aside the kind of patriarchal limitations put on female sexuality. And I was really interested in all that stuff. Equally, there's another slightly darker thread about the infantilization of women and the sexualization of children. And that stuff's maybe a little harder, I thought, to kind of comfortably wrap your head around. But it has great moments. You know, I love the evolution of the relationship between Bella and Mark Ruffalo's character, how it begins and then obviously how it ends. Uh, It goes, I mean, so I should say it's a two and a half hour film. It is not short and it definitely won't be for everyone because as I said, it is utterly, utterly batshit. I can definitely say you will have not seen nor probably will you ever see a film quite like this. It is an experience. It is to be relished. It is to be celebrated. There's lots to talk about. You may absolutely fucking hate it. And that would be a legitimate response. And I think Lanthimos would probably welcome it. Um, but you also might fall in love with it. Either way, there's an awful lot here. It's. I think it's fabulous. I, I really loved it. And I think, uh, I mean, th- there are things we could probably quibble with. I mean, but this is really an interesting one, especially to come after a year of people arguing online that sex scenes in films are never essential, that they can, they are always gratuitous. <laughs> in this film, they are absolutely essential. They are absolutely a part of her development. They are a very, very key part of who she is and what she is. And she's what she is is basically a person without the world yeah. not developed shame and who explores the world in this very open way and and that is kind of extraordinary and it sort of shows you how far apart we are from that in yeah. in sort of normal life even though it's set in the victorian era and that is that's really fascinating and and her attitudes to sex are fascinating furious um, jumping furious jumping which is just an incredible way of talking about <laughs> I have it. added that to my hinge profile by the way of course of course um but but at the same time you know i, I think there are you could probably quibble about well you know would a man be the best way to discover that and in fairness he isn't initially but you know anyway uh it's I think it's brilliant. I think it is really fairy tale. I wouldn't say nearly fairy tale. I would say fully, fully fairy tale. Very deliberately artificial, but also incredibly beautiful. I want so many items, pieces of decor, <laughs> rooms from this film. Mm. There's there's some inlaid wood on the cabin wall of a ship they're on that I still just think about all the time. The costumes are right this world. They're kind of like half a Victorian costume at all times. She wears a lot of mutton chop sleeves. She somehow looks good in them. Nobody understands how her char- her hair is almost a character in the film on in its own right. So much hair. You've got Willem Dafoe as this person who is both Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster sort yeah. of in one. It's just full. And then Mark Ruffalo, like you have never seen him before. Yeah. Just this absurd rake, <laughs> this this complete <laughs> just cad, uh, but also this very charming, weird little man. Mm. Um, he's he's wonderful in this. And and everyone is wonderful in this. Catherine Hunter turns up as this m- madam in a, in a Parisian brothel at one point. It's just kind of magical and and I loved it. But yes, it won't be for everyone. There is there is gross body stuff as well as sex body stuff and it will weird people out. But um but I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I it, it, he's he is so distinctive as a filmmaker. And I do think this is one of these things where lots of people like the favorite and will come into this expecting the favorite and will be surprised because it isn't that like the favorite is very accessible 
for an Anthemos film. This, yeah. this is not accessible in that way. But it's also not like, uh, I wouldn't say there's a lot of sort of like highbrow gatekeeping. Like it's not, oh, it's, no. it's like, it, like it's you fun. just got to roll with it, yeah. right? Like you got to accept it for what it is because um, it is whack. <laughs> it may make you want a custard tart though so do do be aware and to eat it in one bite indeed yeah anyway that got five stars and well deserved us. yes absolutely well deserved and it will be in the Oscar conversation yeah I, I honestly think the best actress is a two horse race between her and Lily Gladstone mm. I think Lily Gladstone has a better story Emma unfortunately already got uh, her Oscar for the wrong film um <laughs> For La La Land, but um, but otherwise, I would I would absolutely give it to her. So um, if she hadn't if she hadn't already got one, frankly, anyway. So that is five stars for Poor Things. Okay, so next we have The Boys in the Boat, which is the new film from George Clooney, directing, not starring. Um, based on a screenplay by Mark L. Smith, but that is based on the book of the same name by Daniel James Brown. So this is the account of the University of Washington. That's the state, not the city. Rowing team and their quest to compete in the 1936 Summer Olympics. So the idea was basically the US decided to send whoever was best out of all their university rowing teams, you know, like all the full team, to Berlin for the Summer Olympics. This yeah. is the Jesse Owens Olympics, the Hitler Olympics, right? It was a big deal. They probably um, shouldn't call it that. They didn't officially, but I'm just putting it in context <laughs> for people. So um, our kind of hero here is Callum Turner as Joe Rance, who's kind of also the hero of the book. And he was a kid who was really on his uppers. Um, like literally, he's very Steve Rogers in Captain America. Beard? He's very, no, but newspaper in his shoe, in the soles of his shoes, is that Steve Rogers, you know? Um, but he's really struggling to get by. He's really struggling to get tuition to keep studying engineering at the University of Washington, keep his position there. Um, so he joins the rowing team basically out of need. He is living in a car among a bunch of hobos, scrabbling for food, often going to a soup kitchen. This is the depths of the Depression era. And he is really, really struggling to get by. So he joins the rowing team to try to just get a place to sleep and some regular food and his tuition, I guess. And he gets on the team, slight spoiler there for the first bit of the film. Uh, the coach is Al Ulbrichsen, played by Joel Edgerton, who is this very, very successful, very famous coach, but he hasn't been getting the big wins. They keep getting beaten by their University of California rivals. Um, and he's under real pressure to basically deliver something this year. But he has this great team. The only thing is they have to figure out how to work together. So the first part of the, f of the film is really putting the team together, figuring out how they can row a boat as one. And then the second part of the film is really getting into competition and seeing what they can do. You know, look, if you know anything about the history, you'll know what they could do, but I'm not going to spoil it here because I found it really tense. Even having read the book, even having known the outcome, I found this incredibly tense going in and watching all the races and seeing how it was it was going to play out. And it's not an easy sport, I think, to film. So credit to Clooney for, I think, doing a good job of making boat racing look really exciting. Do you know what I mean? I don't think it's it's not as easy to, to film as, I don't know, American football or basketball seem to be able to film pretty well. Yeah. You know, rowing, not so much. It's so it's like, do you make difficult. it a rowing action film? Do you make it a character-driven drama? It's not an either-or. Oh boy. Oh boy. It is not an or film. No. The place this film falls down for me is actually when it tries to amp up some of its drama credentials. Like the story really is in the boat. The story is about literally the boys in the boat. That should be the focus. The, sh the focus should be on not just Joe, but all of his teammates, 
all of them working together, all of them getting past all their interpersonal bullshit to to row the boat together, right? Yeah. But it keeps trying to give us these very traditional beats. So there's a bit with Joe's absent father. There's his very sweet, but not, you know, maybe overplayed romance with another student played by Hadley Romance. Wilson. You've got to stop. It's just painful for all of us. I've, but... got, a, I've got a logistical question. Okay. How did they tell the difference between the cast and crew? You're a monster. <laughs> You're an absolute monster. Anyway, there's just a little bit too much of that kind of soapy personal stuff that we didn't need. I think that if this had f- kept the focus literally in the boat, I think it would be a better film. Right. Joel Edgerton gets some great like coach speeches, coach moments. I enjoyed those. There's there's lots of sort of men being uh, really deeply moved by other men's kindness or loyalty kind of like, oh my goodness, that's so nice moments, but not being able to show it because they're men kind of things, which I, I really enjoy in my sports movies. So I'd like, there's lots of really good moments in it. I had a really nice time watching it, but there are just these soapy beats which just have you rolling your eyes and it didn't need to be there. And there is also the worst framing device I have seen in many's a year. And, and this is crucial, the worst, most corny, most unnecessary, most crowbarred in last line of anything I've seen in in a good decade that I can think of. It is such a bad last line that I don't know why it was left in. I really, I really would have taken it out. I think they're trying to do a sort of Saving Private Ryan framing device, and it absolutely is terrible. It's awful. I hated it so much, and I was having such a nice time yeah. with the boys in the boat, not in a sex way. I just... No, I would also George, like to... George, Helen has notes. I have just, just, that's one big note, George. But I mean, look, I had a really nice time otherwise. I thought Jack Mulhern, who I hadn't really come across before as the stroke, stop, uh, <laughs> who's Don Hume, he's really fun, even with a slightly underwritten part. I liked all of these rowers. I just would have liked a bit more from them. But um, And Callum Turner, I think, has real star quality here in a way that he didn't get to show in the Fantastic Beast film because, let's be honest, nobody came out of those well. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, like... I had fun. Um, I gave it three stars. I wrote the Empire Review. I I understand why people have gone too because that final line leaves such a bad taste in your mouth. <laughs> and and like I say, these soapy bits don't need to be there. But it's 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 a it's a sports underdog story. So you know it's yeah. hard to go completely wrong. Excellent. Yeah. Well, no, kind of good. Okay, so average. Average. Just <laughs> above average. Yeah. Three stars for the boys in the boat. Shall we talk about the beekeeper, James? Not the bees! Not the bees! (laughs) Oh my God. Now, there's a very real chance this is going to be the next half hour of the podcast. Uh, So, this is the new film by David Ayer. And it stars Jason Statham as a man named Adam Clay. Now, Adam Clay... Or is he? And he lives a quiet life. He's uh, living on a farm and he's a... Well, a beekeeper. Mm-hmm. He looks after bees. And the woman who owns the farm from whom he rents a barn and keeps his bees is the victim of a fishing scam. Fishing with a PH. Not fishing that. with a PH. They 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 screw her for frankly an awful lot of money that isn't actually hers. It's like a charity that 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 she administers. She is devastated by this whole thing. But as luck would have it, it turns out that the gentleman who rents her barn is is not only a beekeeper, he is some kind of super special secret Uber agent, retired, who belonged to an organization called, wait for it, The Beekeepers. So to recap, a super special secret agent from an organization called The Beekeepers retires 
And his undercover identity when he retires... Uh, is to become a beekeeper. <laughs> I have some notes on your spycraft right? there, James, it's, Jason, but yeah. It's extraordinary. So said beekeeper comes out of retirement and works his way up the fishing food chain to literally the very top, killing the shit out of everyone. And that is basically the plot of this film. However, I will say two things about this film. Well, I will say many more than two things, but I will start with two things. First of all, at this point, having watched the film, if you pinned me down and tortured me with bees and asked me whether or not this was a comedy or not, I would not, in all honesty, be able to give you an answer. I could charitably say yes. I think the reality is, no, it's not. But it is funny. Not always deliberately, sometimes deliberately, because it's, it's in this odd hinterland between a kind of commando-style action, ridiculously over-the-top action film that is so bad it's good, and an action comedy. But there are literally no jokes in this film, like none. Except there are, but they're not intentional because there are so many fucking bee jokes in this film. Like puns, like literally a to be or not to be. To be. Or who the fuck are you? Winnie the Pooh? I mean... That there is literally a bit where someone reads from a book of bee facts and just regales us with facts about bees for no real reason. It is so absolutely absurd. I can't even begin to tell you. I I was so confused by this because so the neighbour we should say is played by Felicia Rashad, sure, um, uh, who's a legend. She's amazing, but. Like, her scenes with Statham had the warmth of two people who have just been in a road rage accident. And I, so I didn't, like, it was a very weird relationship to be starting the film with. Emily Raver Lampman then plays her daughter, who sort of comes in, she turns out to be an FBI agent. So, of course, she's the sort of law-abiding lawman kind of following in, in Statham's wake or in yeah. Adam Clay's wake, trying to, trying to unravel this fishing scam. Uh, she's paired with Bobby Naderi as as a her her partner who's who was fun, I thought. The two of them were fun. I enjoyed their scenes together. But so much of this film is so weird. And it's not a big it's not a big spoiler to say that the the guy behind a lot of this fishing stuff <laughs> is Josh Hutcherson. Peter from the Hunger Games. Yeah. As Derek. And and just a bad guy played by Josh Hutcherson <laughs> called Derek in a Jason Statham film. There's not a lot of kind of peril to Stath's well-being no, from him, no, you know. I mean, Jeremy Irons, who's who's kind of his kind of major domo, uh, you know, it does his best to be threatening. And mini drivers mini in it drivers very in briefly, it for like a minute. And this is the thing. So you and and, and so you got three Brits now. You got Statham, you got Irons, you got Driver. All three of them have one thing in common in this particular film, and that is that with greater or lesser degrees of success, they are all putting on American accents. Now, let's have a brief history lesson. Jason Statham famously put on an American accent in the first Transporter film. It was swiftly abandoned because it was terrible and he was never asked to do one again. Now, I do not fully understand the thought process behind somehow trying to get him to resurrect that accent here. But let me tell you, it was not a good move. There is even a point where a character says to him, I, I hear some British Isles in your accent to almost try and gloss over the fact that this accent is bad. But it, Well, that's the classic Liam Neeson approach, isn't it? Yeah, really? but, it but do you know what I mean? But it's just... 
I think the problem with it is, is that when you buy into a Staith movie, you want the Staith. And part of the Staith is that he sounds like the Staith. And I think you need that. And I think the American accent, not only is it not good, but it takes away from his inherent Staithiness. And I genuinely found it immensely distracting all the way through this film, because also it's just like, where are you from? And it seems to change from scene to scene. But but also just stop it. Just be the Staith. Stop stop it. Stop acting. Stop just acting be and be the state. Because that's what we came here for. Uh, yeah, like, I don't know. I, I was just weirded out by the whole thing. I also think it's politics, which it turns out to have kind of, <laughs> are, are as far as I can tell, obnoxious. I, I would get into spoilers to say why, but I feel like it's a bit, it's a bit gross in the way that it, it portrays politics. I thought... Ah, I, I, I look, I really, you know, it's a Jason Statham action movie called The Beekeeper. I was here for it. I really was here for it. But I I, I was, I felt like I was laughing at, not with. And maybe oh, I'm yeah. being unfair. No, but no. It felt like at rather than with. There was literally a bit where Jeremy Irons says, <laughs> you kicked the beehive, now we have to reap the whirlwind. And someone says to Jason Statham, you've been a busy bee. I, I, honestly, the amount of bee-related shit in this film is quite extraordinary. And, and like the to be or not to be line, if that had come from Jeremy Irons, I probably could have dealt with it. Yeah. But it came from someone who had never read a line of Shakespeare in, on purpose in his life. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that to sound snobbish, but this character very much seemed like he had given up with formal schooling and never particularly taken himself to the theatre. You know, so I just didn't understand the He's thing not even a it. patron of the arts. I don't think he'd even watched the last action hero version of it, to be honest. <laughs> anyway. uh, this comes from Kurt Vimmer, obviously the man behind the glorious equilibrium. As the screenwriter, we As the screenwriter, yes, this. absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's just very, very, very bad. Um, and... Honestly, it's not even really 100% so bad. It's good. It's just kind of bad, bad, because it's also quite boring. And I will say, so the action sequences are a mixed bag because the state knows his way around an action sequence. He's very good at this stuff. And actually, some of the action is actually quite fun in that it is deliberately flamboyant and over the top. Mm -hmm. Like, it's ridiculous. And he's... There's a bit with a lift. That's pretty good. There is, I mean, there's one man army antics and there's whatever he's doing here. And some of the stuff he's doing is so outrageous that it's really enjoyable. But the editing's really choppy. Yeah. And so it takes you out of it a little bit and it's a little bit distracting as well. So, like I say, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And when he goes into these fishing call centres, they're almost like game shows. They're wildly overblown. That made no sense to me. It's like you're trying to convince people over the phone that you're in an average call centre and you're walking right. around the noise easiest room in the world like it just wouldn't have sounded right to, and maybe their marks aren't savvy enough but come on like learn how phones work because it, it's odd it has a mix of quite dark grim serious stuff like fishing is a real thing targeting older people is a real thing you know there's a there's a suicide in it which is quite upsetting you know there's there's stuff in here that fit, and then there's moments where like an assassin whips out a truck mounted minigun and you're just like what has happened? We're now in Austin Powers. Like it's like it's <laughs> totally. It is such an odd film. And then I would just like to draw your, all of your attention to the poster of this film, in which Jason Statham is made of bees. He is literally made of bees. He's meant to be a beekeeper, not a bee man. People, come on. Anyway, we give this two stars. We did. Which is probably one more than James would give it. <laughs> But about right for me. Not to be. Uh, I'm sorry, honey. The buzz on this 
Oh, this no. may sting, but it's not good. Oh, boy. Oh, I'm out of puns. Thank God for that. Long may it last. Okay, well, uh, on to the next action film of the week, which is Lift. We have heard already, obviously, from Kevin Hart and Gugu Mbatha-Raw. Uh, this is from F. Gary Gray and opens in Venice, where Kevin Hart, a known thief, a, an international super thief, is attending an art auction. Well... I already feel worried for the art <laughs> at that auction. But unbeknownst to him, or perhaps not, is the fact that uh, Guggenbatha Raw's Interpol agent is watching um, because she expects him to get into shenanigans. And, and sure enough, shenanigans ensue. So he plays Cyrus, she's Abby. Um, and she then gets ordered by her boss, played by Sam Worthington, Huxley, uh, to basically recruit Cyrus and his team of, you know, specialities. It's a it's a heist movie thing. Um, to execute a mid-air heist for very long and complicated and boring reasons that I had to actually rewind and re-watch I to figure out what was happening. I swear to God, this feels like it could be the plot of a Fast and Furious movie. 100% could be. Yeah, very much. Although they, they would need to insert some more cars. cars yeah, mid-air cars, um, flying mid cars. Because they have a boat bit and they have lots of flying bits and not nearly enough car bits. So that would have to be addressed, of course, for, for a fast movie. But yes, they have to basically get away with a bunch of gold from a plane in midair. And that's basically the heist that they have to pull off, which involves a whole bunch of stuff. So Vincent D'Onofrio is on the team. Ursula Cordobero is there. Billy Magnuson, who's always fun. Uh, Yunji Kim, they're all on the team. Jean Reno is the baddie. He's in it for about 10 seconds. Don't worry if you miss him. It's fine, I thought. I thought it was fine. I feel like I've seen it a million times, <laughs> but I was like, fine. They do some actual shooting on location around Italy, which looks amazing. You had no geographical quibbles? No, I mean, like, well, I mean, a couple with Venice, the Venice bits, but Venice mostly looked like Venice, even though I don't think there are that many people who wander around in cloaks and masks in the middle of the day and in what didn't appear to be February. <sighs> but fine. Like, I wasn't making a fuss about it. Uh, but it's just... It's just a little bit been there, seen that. You know, I we've seen all of these bits before. We've seen the sort of, you know, X's on opposite sides of the law. We've seen the heisty team recruited to work with law enforcement to take down a bigger bad. We've seen all of this before. And John Reno, tries he might, just doesn't have enough screen time to make really any impact as our bad guy. So mm. it sort of doesn't really work that way. So there was a bit in Northern Ireland for no reason that I appreciated. Byrne Gorman <laughs> turns up as a bad Northern Irish guy. Did they go to John's Causeway? They didn't. No, I think they were on Loch Earn by the, by the looks of it or Loch Ney. I couldn't tell. But, you know, it's fine. I had a nice time. We as a magazine gave it two stars. Sounds fair. I, I would probably have gone three personally, but I'm not going to quibble. Yeah. Well, you know, lift goes up and down. Oh, boy. You're just, you said you were out of puns a minute ago. Could you not have stuck to that for like They five regenerate minutes? over time. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, so two stars then for Lyft. And one that we missed last week because we hadn't got the screener in time <laughs> is Good Grief. Now, this is the film from uh, Dan Levy. It's um, not Good Grief, the Charlie Brown story. It is not Good Grief, the Charlie Brown story, although I would watch that, actually. Dan Levy stars as Mark, who's an illustrator who is blissfully married to Oliver, who's a who's a book writer. It writes a sort of Enola Holmes-type series of books Enola that, Holmes. that Mark then illustrates. He's played by Luke Evans, uh, Oliver. And he's best friends with Ruth Negga's Sophie and Tamesh Patel's Thomas. So all is well until one day Oliver is suddenly killed in a car accident. And Mark is left, obviously bereft, his his 
friends start to sort of comfort him through this. And all seems to be, he seems to be kind of on the road to recovery until another revelation about Oliver comes to light almost a year later. And he takes the other two off for a weekend in Paris. And basically they have all sorts of revelations and all sorts of coming to Jesus moments uh, and that they realize their lives have maybe gone in slightly the wrong direction and, and come to some new realizations about themselves and each other. It's it's a very lovely character-based kind of comedy drama. It's quite mm. funny. And it's nice to see Ruth Negga use her actual accent for, I think, the first time I've ever seen on the big screen. Where is she from? She's Irish. She's Irish. Oh, yeah. I knew that. I did know that. So that was lovely, for example. So it, I just had a really nice time with it. It, it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It, it isn't, you know, a, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. But as a directorial debut, which this is for, for Levy, I thought it was really well done. It made both Paris and London look amazing. Of course, it helps that these characters are meant to be rich because, you know, he's just done this best-selling amazing series of books and they live in a beautiful house <laughs> and go and stay in a beautiful apartment in Paris that naturally overlooks the uh, Eiffel Tower because every apartment in Paris does apparently according to the movies. It was weird that mine didn't when I lived there actually. <laughs> it's almost like the movies Did you live in Paris, Helen? I had no idea. Yeah, for a year in college. Anyway, that's not the point. <sighs> the point is it's it's really a lovely well-drawn character piece. It's the sort of growing up movie making that we were told we don't get anymore. Yeah. And it is also very funny at times while while kind of involving you in the emotion of all these characters. So yeah, we give it three stars, which I think is probably about right. I think some people will go four and they won't be wrong. But overall, I think it's it's a promising beginning for Levy as a, as a sort of big screen director, if you will, even though it's on Netflix, uh, rather than, you know, necessarily his masterpiece at this point. Indeed. So yeah, good grief. Well done. And that is finally it for this week's Woo! reviews. So last but not least, it is actually time to talk to Dan Levy, the star and co-creator of the amazing sitcom Shit's Creek. If you haven't watched that, get after it. And now, of course, the writer, director and star of Good Grief. Uh, so we sent Chris along to chat to Dan when he was in town recently and learn all about his directorial debut. Please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star, the writer and the director of Good Grief, Mr. Dan Levy. How are you, sir? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Good, good, good. Did I, did I leave anything out? Did you do the catering on, on the weekends? <laughs> Nobody wants me catering. Nobody wants me in a kitchen. <laughs> well, it'd be bad. <laughs> it, would be really, it would be really bad. <laughs> like an yeah. E. coli outbreak. <laughs> yeah, I make breakfast. That's the extent of my my cooking skills. So, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, so what, what, do you, what do you cook for breakfast? What's oh, your, what's goodness. A, what's I, can do a re- I can do a really nice pancake and a soft scrambled egg. Both of which require very little, very little skill. So, uh, yeah, nobody wants me catering a full spread for a crew of 120 people. That would be a, a very angry crew. Besides, you had you had a pretty full dance card for this one, right? You were, yeah. you know, you were <laughs> you were pretty busy. All the hats on good grief, yeah. Just hat on a hat on a hat. Was it always the intention? I'm, I'm guessing it was because Mark seems like a role very much that that you wrote for your, yourself. You were like, yeah, yeah, no one else course. can play this except me. You know, I think it I, it started with the script, and I was so close to the script that I I knew that I sh- should direct it. I knew that I was so close to it that mm-hmm. if anyone else had come in, I would be just buzzing around them. And being a general annoyance anyway, because I had such a clear vision for it when I wrote it. Yeah. And that was the thing. I mean, I I never want to step into a position where I feel like I'm unqualified. And I I was lucky enough to have directed a a 
several episodes of my TV show. And, and I think the, the act of show running and, and having to understand how to speak to every different department, it, it really kind of set me up for uh, feeling capable in this, in this capacity to, to, to direct and to, for people to trust me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just, it, it, I had such a clear vision when I was writing it that I just knew that everything else felt like an inevitability. I certainly was writing it for myself. Uh, you know, I've, I've always wanted to explore drama, especially coming out of comedy. I think there was something kind of rebellious in me that was like, I won't be pigeonholed. Um, <laughs> in that accent. <laughs> in that accent. Yeah, yeah. In like a Clint Eastwood sort of vibe. Um, you think you can pigeonhole me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I can. <laughs> so, you know, it, uh, yeah, I, I threw a lot of hats on, but they all felt important to me. By the way, if you'd wanted not to be pigeonholed, yeah. making the good, the bad, and the ugly would have been the <laughs> way to imagine? go. Can you imagine? Yeah. I don't know. That would be a huge casting stretch, but I'm I'm kind of into the premise. I could see it. I can absolutely see uh -huh. it. I mean, my God. I mean, you are you are um, one of the best dressed people in, in the movies today. You're wearing a jumper right now, which is resplendent and makes me feel just horribly <laughs> underdressed. Yeah. And I could just see you rocking a you poncho. You can see it from space, actually, I think. so. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hell of a thing. So it's so, so after Shit's Creek, was this was this immediately? Were you thinking you were you thinking about you? Know, I'm not going to be pigeonholed, but we're, we're, this is no, a very I, I, interesting. I gave myself a break. Pivot. Yeah, it was a, a really long. It was uh, close to eight years, and I guess eight or nine years from beginning to end in terms of just getting figuring it out, getting it made, and then wrapping it up. Um, so I gave myself a break and told to, sort of told my brain to to relax for a minute. And, I, and, and hoping in the process that something would come to me, I think I knew that I wanted to make something that explored friendship yeah. uh, as the central sort of focus. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then in the process, the pandemic happened and I had some loss in my life and I was, I was reconciling with how I felt about that, what loss meant to me. My dog died in the process and I was cracked open in this way that was very kind of disorienting. And questioning whether I felt like I was feeling enough, whether I was grieving appropriately, and all of these questions that came to me in relation to my brain sort of slowly honing in on a story about friendship thought, okay, well, this could be kind of interesting. What would a story look like um, in the wake of a loss? What could grief yeah. then do to these in, in the case of the film, these three friends who have been so close for so long, maybe it will act as this catalyst to kind of crack open the truth and and either set them free or completely break them apart. And um, and it sort of does a bit of both. But yeah, it does. It was a really, it, it felt like a really interesting world to explore and a, and a great way into that story about friendship. So that that's fascinating, and because uh, I was wondering about the, the the catalyst and and where this this story came from, because it it did feel very very personal, yeah, in, in a lot of ways. But I was also really really taken by the title, "Good Grief," mm. which has all kinds of meanings and all kinds of layers, and you know this this idea it kind of asks the question alone: Can grief? Be good. Be good. Can yeah. good come out of grief? Yeah. And I, I've been, I've, I've grieved, lost, but lost mm. both my parents over the years, and yeah, and it, yeah, and it's, it's a really interesting time because there have been times I was wondering if I, if I was grieving mm. correctly for them. Mm. Um, and was that something that you wanted to explore in terms of the title, for example? Is that something that, that came to you yeah. early in the process? It, it, a question I mean, you wanted to tackle. I think finding a name, finding a title for any kind of project is. Um, 
is always the hardest part, kind of. I mean, you have, unless you start with it. But in my case, it's always the last thing that I think about because I, I want to know what the idea is first. And then you hope that if the idea is clear enough, a title will come that speaks to it with the same kind of specificity. <laughs> and um, sometimes you're lucky and sometimes you're not. And in the case of this one, I, I, I spent days at my desk just like writing down the worst possible names for this movie. And then one day it came and it was just, I wrote it down and I, and I, I breathed a sigh of relief because I knew that was it. And it, it, the turn of phrase, what it really means, those two words side by side, it just felt, it felt like it really just summed up this movie in such a clear and concise way. And I, yeah, I mean, I think it does pose that question. I think can it be good? Can any good come from it? And I yeah. think the movie says yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually. Which doesn't mean, of course, we should go around bumping people off just so we could feel good. <laughs> Absolutely done, not. That's an entirely different line. story. No. <laughs> one. But in the this case of some movie. of these characters, it, you know, it, it led to some, it led to some love and some happiness. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and so there's so many questions about uh, I have about the film as well. So it's set in London and Paris, mm. uh, uh, of course. Yeah. Um, was that always the the idea for you? Are you, are you that was a, the hope. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know if I was ever going to make a movie again after this. Uh -huh. So why not have a great time in some really beautiful <laughs> locations? Um, I knew that I wanted Mark to be a transplant. I knew that I wanted him to be. You know, he he moved to London in in the story very in his early twenties. It was when I moved to London. I knew mm -hmm. that experience really well. I knew that I wanted him to have that kind of fish out of water thing. I knew that it would help fortify his relationships with his friends because being in a place by yourself in your early twenties, the bonds you make with the people, the friends you sort of you you cling to in those moments are really important. And I also just yeah that sense of isolation it just it it helped with the story and you know the the paris of it all was simply a practicality thing it was mm. like going somewhere romantic that had to be close yes so a train right away helped us a lot and also just the beauty of paris and the romance of paris juxtaposed against the the tragedy of what was going on in mark's life felt like a really felt like a really uh, a great tension that was there without having to write or say anything. Mm. You know, the location in and of itself was constantly pushing against him yeah. as he embarked on this kind of Parisian adventure that was rooted in, in untruth in like lies ultimately and deceit um, and how beautiful it is for some people like you know he looks over at this couple in a restaurant who are who get engaged by the end of this dinner and mm -hmm. um and how some people are living in this city and really sort of squeezing it for all that it is yeah and and it's it's doing the opposite to him <laughs> yeah he get, he's a, he's sullen and he's uh, and he's getting <laughs> batted about yeah. if you will yeah so but shooting on location i mean you know london you obviously you know london you've yeah. lived here 
This you, know, you, you you're, you're London, by the way, Dan seems a lot better and a lot more full of of social life than than mine. By the way, <laughs> you're not going to warehouse art parties. No, I'm not taking I'm not. an installation art over I'm the not. holidays. I'm not having Christmas Christmas Listen. parties that end at midnight with sing songs around the piano. This is <laughs> you got to come. We'll hang out a little more. I've got to. Yeah. Got to. You got to tell me who where you, where you get your jumpers from as well. Exactly. I'm sorely mm-hmm. missing out. But you knew London, obviously. So I knew. That was a big I thing. knew. My, like you know, a, a tourist version of it. I. I've, I'd lived here in my twenties for, you know, ha- half a year. Um, Where'd you live? A lot of, I lived uh, on Charlotte street. Really? Yeah. It was funnily enough. Um, there's a story in the movie about finding a sex toy um, <laughs> in an apartment that our three friends lived in. That story is factually completely true. <laughs> That happened to me in my first apartment in London, which Charlotte Street is kind of a fancy little part of town. It's very fancy. The apartment was not fancy. It was like (laughs) the very, very top and it was tiny. And there were some people who I think had sex for money in the unit um, before I moved in. Nothing wrong with that. And I found- No, there's absolutely not. (laughs) You know, get paid. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, but they left one of their homemade uh, sex toys. It's, okay, okay. I know we're not. I don't even know if we that. can have this conversation on this podcast. Of course but, we can. Of course okay. we can. We're 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 adults. Um, anyway, and- there's a lot of my London life actually in this film. <laughs> I didn't I didn't expect it to make its way in, but it, it's here. Okay, it seeped into the film. Yeah, one of my friends who who I've been friends with since high school and moved and kind of moved to London at the same time as me is probably one of four people that know that story. And now and everyone he came me. to the screening the other night and was was baffled that somehow it made its way now into a motion picture. And you know what? That's what life is all about. If you have the freedom as a writer to take some of your lived experience and and hoist it onto the the big screen, then go for it. Absolutely, write what you know. Yeah, write exactly. what you know. Um, listen, I don't want to get caught up in the homemade dildo, uh, so to speak. That's a terrible uh-huh. turn of phrase, but it's a whole uh, other podcast. It's, 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 it's a very different uh-huh. podcast. Um, I, I, I've got, I've got to ask a little bit about it. What was it? How, when you say homemade, what what was it? Well, it was exactly as described in the film. Right. It was a a c- cylindrical perfume bottle that someone had put a condom around. <laughs> And I don't. I mean, maybe I'm jumping to a conclusion. If you think that could could have been something else, then feel free to correct me. But it was found behind the bed, so I don't come to I don't London. Know. <laughs> yeah, visit <laughs> London. Delights await you. Yeah, surprises at every turn. Uh, because I I love that. I love the. You said this word so beautifully earlier on. I'm going to completely fuck it up. Specificity. Oh my god, I did it. Uh, uh, of of the locations and location work. And when you go to Paris, you're shooting in Paris. That mm. apartment that you're that you're in. Oh yeah. I'm guessing, unless that's the best backdrop I've ever seen. You can actually see the Eiffel Tower. You can actually see the Eiffel Tower, which is, which is astonishing, and I love that. It gives it gives the movie so much, you know, uh, verisimilitude, and it gives it so much life mm. as well, which is tremendous. There's a there's a, a moment where you all go karaoke in. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, this is a very very strange question, but was that shot in Paris or was that shot here in London? Why do you ask? Because it looked like a karaoke place I'd gone to. Is it the one in London? Lucky Voice. Yeah, of course. Oh, there you go. That's exactly where it I've was. I've been in that room singing Elton John. Well, there you go. So we tried to dress it up to make it look a little different. But you know what? Like the budget can only stretch for so long. (laughs) Our poor producing team was, you know, I I don't think they had planned on on me really insisting that it would be really predominantly location based. Yeah. So there was an entirely different budget when this movie started. It was very much like sets. 
And I, I, I love movies that take me places and I love the really being somewhere. Yeah. And it was really important that we shoot on location and that everything be real. Um, just to give that texture, you know, you, I, I want people when they watch the movie to really feel like they're a part of this, ex- that they're experiencing along it, along with the characters and the lushness of the locations. And this, we shot in a beautiful home in in Bayswater. Um, they had to take all of the furniture out and dressed the entire house. It was our, our production design team are just geniuses. <laughs> and, you know, I think they lost some years of their life in, in doing so, but it was, you know, that it's, it, this, the sensory experience of watching the movie was really important. The, the kind of, you know, I didn't want anyone to feel like they're watching a set. No, absolutely. And that, that, that shot, I mean, and not to give too much weight, but people know it, it is about loss, but that shot at the beginning where where Mark runs into the street and you can see the shot from oh, yeah. from that from the flat uh, and, you know, towards the the, the crash mm. is 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 fantastic and uh, I, I just imagine that was you know, again being inside the flat gives us so much power. Yeah, and it also kind of you know I think that was a suggestion um, that Ula Berkland, or, or my DP on the film sort of throughout there. And I thought it was so appropriate because you never want to weigh in on the drama of it. You know, it was in a way the first 15 or 10 minutes of the movie should almost feel like life. And then it stops. Yeah. And there's something about staying inside with the party goers and witnessing something that they don't even know, they don't—they're—they're they're not entirely they sure what's going it. on. They yeah, they just see the it. lights. Yeah, it's—it sort of comes into their, you know, they happen to see it out the window, and it, it this this seemingly inconsequential moment, witnessed by the the second floor of a, you know the through through a window in the second floor of a house, changed the entire course of this person's life, and um, you know, we 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 had a shot where we were kind of tracking with me running down on the ground. And it it was, first of all, if you ever want to see yourself running in slow motion, uh, it's a humbling experience. <laughs> uh, I am not Harrison Ford. Uh, but no, the, the removal of it, yeah. the austerity of it, almost the, the fact that you don't, you're watching pain through, through a window and not actually with the character. It really just, I, I don't know, it felt very appropriate to the whole experience. Absolutely. And I have to say as well, you know, I, I, again, going into the film, knowing what it was about and knowing, I think we can say that, we can say that Luke Evans's character passes away. We can say that. Sure. Right? Um, and knowing that it was, it was Luke who was going to pass away. Those first ten minutes were, as you say, full of life and full of joy and full of hope. But inside, I was just, I was watching through my metaphorical fingers because mm. I was expecting a, a heart attack or mm. or something to happen all of a sudden. Um, uh, and it, when it comes out of nowhere as, as it does, it's it is it's all the more shocking. But and it's just a strange question. But can you talk about that? Can you talk about choosing that that method, the way that you know, the way that he. Dies yeah, in the film. you. I wanted it to feel like a surprise, and I wanted it to. It also had to represent something. Like he was, he was. It's it's brought up later in the movie when when sort of the layers of deceit are kind of pulled back. Mm-hmm. But the act of leaving felt important 
in the storytelling, yes. or at least how Mark would perceive it all. And I think a lot of that is heightened emotions um, and, and conflating his own fears with, with the truth. Mm-hmm. There was something kind of tragic about his husband leaving, physically leaving him and having it happen that way, as opposed to something in the house. Mm. Um, and also it sets up the intrigue of, you know, was he going to Paris simply to do what he said he was going to do? Yes. Or was there something more yeah. to it? And it's up to Mark at the end of the movie to kind of reconcile the fact that maybe yes, maybe no. We we had we we found out a little bit. Yeah. But it really comes down to just accepting the love of their relationship and um and coming to terms with the fact that things can be complicated, but relationships can still mean something. Yeah. One of the last things, of course, that uh, Oliver says, maybe even the last thing he says to Mark is, you know, we've got, we've got much to discuss. Mm-hmm. And boy, is that statement true. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just, a, it's loaded. There's little things that are sprinkled all the way through it, I think, which must have been, you know, was that something that you, you put in as you, yeah, as you were yeah, going? Yeah, of course. You know, it was all really carefully considered in terms of, you know, if, if anyone wanted to go back and rewatch that first 15 minutes or I wanted it to be set up appropriately that it all made sense. Yeah. Um, and in a way that he was being truthful for people that have seen the movie, you could kind of understand mm-hmm. what we're talking about at yes. this point, but that, that he, his intentions were true. I believe that he was planning on having that conversation and, and there's a world where maybe Mark, if he opposed the, 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 the setup, the situation that he was revealing that he would have said, okay, and shut it down. Yeah, there's so much ambiguity around it. It was the tragedy of his death that really kicked all the dust up in the air and and forced this kind of melodrama in Mark's mind. Um, and what would have happened if if that if he had just gone to Paris and come home, and Mark had read that letter and they had had that conversation? Would it have spiraled into what it what it did or would it have repaired itself in a yeah. very easy way yeah and that's kind of i think what death can do sometimes is is take a lot of of secrets with it it certainly can it certainly can well there's your writing exercise for the day dan if you want to write that conversation <laughs> at some point. absolutely i'll get a notepad and a pen i want it on my desk by monday morning exactly <laughs> On that note, uh, Daniel Levy, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we will be live Woo-hoo! for episode 600 from King's Place. So just so you know, because of that, we're not recording, obviously, until that happens on Saturday night. So the podcast will not be available in your usual feeds until... Sunday if Chris gets some sleep and honestly Monday morning if he doesn't so uh, just because you know time works that way it's not going to be up on Friday if you would like to hear it sooner if you cannot wait until Sunday or Monday then once again there are streaming tickets still available on the kingsplace.co.uk website so you can join us virtually that way otherwise we will see you again in your ears wait that sounds wrong on Sunday or Monday where we will be made of bees well, uh, I didn't yes. sign up to that. I did not agree to that. Term. Absolutely true. 
Oh God, help us! It's going to be exciting. It's going to be. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm psyched to see everyone. Okay. Yeah, me too. It's going to be great. And we genuinely do have great guests. And I did check if I could announce them yet. And, and Chris said no. no. He said no. <laughs> but like, it is confirmed, and it's proper. Yeah. All right. Until then, until that time, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James. It is goodbye from me. I I'm going to take this opportunity to ask everyone listening for a favour. I would like everyone who listens to this podcast, every single one of you Empire fans, to, regardless of whether you watch television or not, regardless of whether you like me or not, in fact, if you don't like me, you might actually appreciate this because I don't think Boyd and Kay like me very much either, listen to the most recent episode of the Pilot TV podcast. That is what I'd like you to do. I would like you to go away, watch it, and then feedback and let me know what you think. Just It's only a small piece of time. Go and do it. That's my, that's my, and see, the reason I'm doing this now is because Chris isn't editing this episode, so he can't cut it out. Wait, what, you fiends? <laughs> wow. Unlimited power. Well, until that time, it's goodbye from me. I'm off to learn to edit really, <laughs> really fast. Toodaloo. Toodaloo.